0: This is a podcast about cinematic oddities, where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Ben. And I'm Sammy Jankis.
1: Remember me. Oh, we are continuing on with our 2001 fort year with a movie that I've been looking forward to discussing for a while. It is none other than Memento, the Christopher Nolan movie. So I'm excited to get into this. I'm excited to hear what Ben thinks about it. But we don't have Zach here, as I think people might finally be getting the pattern, unless they have Memento disease or just regular disease, because people can't seem to remember anything you know, a week out, that when Zach isn't here in the intro, he's not here at all. And we have to talk about, which we haven't done in a while, where he is. I think the last time we did this was for Beverly Hills Cop, and I'm pretty sure I said something like, he just didn't want to talk about this movie. <laughs> That's fair. The most honest version of that is when we were just like, there's no
0: there's no joke here, you know. <laughs> it's Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> uh, when you said there's no joke here, did you mean in the whole movie? Absol- absolutely. Okay. That's how I felt about it. Anyway, listen to that episode; you'll hear his bitch. Yes,
1: yes. There was a uh, there was a Joe Blow, this uh, YouTube channel that I watch sometimes. They actually just did a video about uh, Beverly Hills Cop three under the guise of like you know, let's talk about really bad movies. And I was like, oh, why didn't they do the first one?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a good way to get canceled, calling the first one bad.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, so so Zach is not here uh, because. I think everybody's going to love this. After our Monkey Bone episode, which was last week, uh, very nicely and, and very excitedly, the restaurant has become somewhat of a new hub for a clench of the Church of the Subgenius. And so this is something we didn't talk about in the Monkey Bone episode. Local groups of the Church of the Subgenius are called clenches. So, so you know, instead of, like, a regional group or something, they're called clenches, uh, another weird term from them.
0: <laughs> Is that, like, a reference to, like, clenching your ass? I, like don't, with, I don't think so, but uh, I didn't look into, like, fist? where that comes from. <laughs> I mean, they are sub-geniuses, so that's really anything below genius. Yeah, yes. Right? <laughs> so it could be a bunch of I, – I think I'm not allowed to say that anymore. <laughs> Damn. Cancel culture is rough, man. Yes, It's yes. taking away all my language. So so the the, uh,
1: the hub for this new clench of the Church Subgenius, there will be a devival held at the restaurant, and Zach is away preparing for it. But you might ask yourself, well, why is Rob not the one doing it? Well, because one of us had to do some preparation, and it came down to which one of Zach and I wanted to discuss Memento more. And here I am. <laughs> so... We have Ben here with us, and I think, if I remember correctly from what you said before, Ben, you have never seen this movie before, which has just become the common thing for most of the movies we discuss on Cinemodities. But, but I think you have some context with this in that you've definitely known about it, or knew you knew about it at one point, but you might have forgotten about it. I mean, how many bad <laughs> memory jokes can we fit into this episode?
0: <laughs> just, just a million bad memory jokes. Yes. Uh, so. I have been told that I should watch Memento, so I, I kind of have this rule. If one person tells me I should watch a movie, I don't watch it. If two people tell me I should watch a mo- the same movie, I still don't watch it. If three people tell me I should watch a movie, I might watch it. And for Memento, I'm up to something like seven. Sure. So it, it does get more likely that I'm going to watch the movie with the number of people that tell me I should watch it up to a point. If it's like 100 people and they're all on Twitter, I'm never watching that movie. But that that's pretty much my context with Memento. And for some reason, like, I remember, uh, what's her name, Angelina Jolie. And I was like, for some reason, I think she's in this movie. She's not. <laughs> uh, I, so, like, I probably didn't know what movie it was these people were telling me I should watch when they told me I should watch it. Okay. <laughs> so that that's pretty much my context with Memento is that I barely have any.
1: I'm trying to think what... What other movie with Angelina Jolie? You would think that this could have I been?
0: <laughs> I don't know. I, I she had, in my mind she had like short hair in this movie for some reason. I don't. Okay. Okay. Interesting. I don't know what. I don't even know what
1: other movie she has short hair in. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you thought this was Changeling.
0: I I don't know. Okay. I, okay. I really have no idea. <laughs> um, I, I just remember thinking, like I think, like Brad Pitt's in this movie, and like Angelina Jolie's in this movie. It's not. I mean, Lenny kind of looks like Brad Pitt, I guess. But, maybe uh,
1: I don't know. Maybe you thought this was Mister and Mrs. Smith
0: because there's Ms in that uh, title too. <laughs> but that is a no, very I, different movie. No, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. The 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 video or like the poster that I'm that I'm remembering has is like has like bright colors on it, which is definitely not this movie. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't I don't know what I thought Memento was. Oh, that'd be crazy if someone's like, "Oh yeah,
1: Memento, that really brightly colored, vibrant movie." <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, that's that's not. So anyway, when when we first when I first started watching this movie, like I'm I'm watching the first scene, and I was like, "Oh shit!" Like the beginnings of Tenet. Like...
1: Yes. Oh yeah. Like this is this of course is Christopher Nolan's second movie. Um, the first I, the first one following is so difficult to even call a movie because it's it cost him like $6,000, it, it was made independently, like, just by him and his friends, like, him figuring out how to make a movie. It's not great by virtue of just being so low budget and so simple. It's definitely, uh, my bottom two Christopher Nolan movies are definitely that and Interstellar. Like, I really want to say Interstellar is my least favorite, but at least Interstellar is a movie where following is, like, an art project where it's just like, imagine if you and I like had like got a camera and bought like a film reel and we're just like, let's just film people doing stuff, you know? And, and at least there's something going for there's actors in interstellar. And there's like, there actually is a story. It's not a great story. That's a stupid movie as Ben and I have talked about many times before, but there's actually something going on, but I, I don't have a a definitive Nolan ranking, but I will say Uh, After following, he gets to make this movie with more money. He gets picked up uh, in in Britain where Christopher Nolan is from. And I'm glad you brought it up that this was a word of mouth movie to you because that's what this movie was when it came out. Like people saw it and they were like – it's one of those things in, in pop culture that when it comes out, people see it and they just catch the bug of needing to tell other people about it. And they're mm-hmm. like, you have to see this movie. And this movie did, like, fantastically. Like, I think it cost, like, $4 million, and it ended and up making... And like, like, 45 Yeah, I, it made yeah, I read that sometime. so much that's, money. and um, That's crazy. And we'll get into how I think, you know, this this movie, a lot of people took the wrong message from it, and it, it basically doomed a lot of film culture for the mass audiences for the rest of time. But I, I do have to say, even though I don't have a definitive Christopher Nolan ranking, um, I definitely would say, I put this in my top three. Like, I really, really love this movie. My context with it is, I saw it for the first time, I think, in 2010 in my undergrad. I watched it with my first-year roommate. Uh, Shout-out to Mike. We absolutely dug it. Um, I think he might have seen it before. I don't remember exactly, but after we watched it, um, we definitely loved the structure of it. I didn't think about it as much you know, thematically as I have now, but I do remember that we loved, we were infatuated with the fact of how many times... Guy Pierce says remember Sammy Jankis in this movie and so we just like started saying that to each other all the time and we would leave post-it notes around our dorm like hidden in each other's desks that just had remember sammy jankus written um, written on them and stuff like that and other people in our dorm room when like we were talking to them we'd like leave and end the conversation would be like hey remember sammy Jankis and then just walk away and stuff like that like some people definitely got annoyed by it at a certain point but that's how this movie stuck with me was it was just always like remember sammy Jankis
0: (laughs) which you should yeah you should you should remember Sammy Jankis um, because he's – I don't know. He's got like this absent, lovable look about him. <laughs> that's a nice thing to say about Stephen Tobolowski,
1: the actor who plays Sammy Jankis, a nice, lovable look. <laughs> I, I, I think I said absent,
0: lovable, but yeah, sure. Oh, nice. okay,
1: okay. I mean that's still, that's still fine. I, I mean like Stephen Tobolowski is one of those people who's been in goddamn everything in the universe and nobody knows his name. <laughs> So so oh and and fun fact he's actually had that actor in real life has had amnesia before and so that's why he like wanted to play that role of Sammy Jenkins because he has like personal experience with amnesia but we'll have to talk about the cast we'll have to talk about wh- why I love this movie so much I've seen it a good bit of times like maybe like five or six times not so much because I think there's more to be gained from watching it multiple times because I love the point of this movie and it like I also love bathing in the fact that I think that people didn't un- don't didn't and still don't understand this movie correctly. But I am very excited to hear now because we know some Nolan together. We've seen Interstellar. Uh, We've talked about Tenet. I'm sure you've seen the Batmans. I'm very excited to know, Ben. So what did you think about finally watching Memento? I I loved it.
0: Okay, right on. (laughs) I I think unadulterated love for this movie i mean 50 minutes in i was like i'm so fucking invested in what's going on in this movie (laughs) like i don't think i've ever watched a movie that was this compelling and so yeah i I really did like it i i read some things around the internet about what people think uh you know happened at at the end of the movie and stuff and i um it seems that for some reason the internet believes that teddy was not just full of shit um, when, <laughs> okay. he, when he says all the stuff about, uh, about Lenny's wife and yep. it being her with diabetes and stuff. And I was like, maybe, but I have no reason to believe that Teddy isn't just a straight fucking liar. Yeah. Everything oh, yeah. I've seen in this movie is him lying. So I, I was a little perplexed by the fact that nobody, none of the things I read even mentioned that that might not be reality. Yep. Yep. Uh, what, what he goes through. But anyway, the, you know, that, that aside, I really did like the movie. Uh, i I did watch it again the second time I watched it. I put it on while I was working mm-hmm. and so I didn't watch it as as attentively the second time, but I definitely liked it. and if I had had time to watch it again straight through like attentively i I would have I just didn't
1: Sure, sure
0: no i mean i'm I'm glad to hear
1: that um it's It's always refreshing uh especially with and i I think you I think you'll agree with this when you watch like a director's movies in their later years. And there's problems with them, you know, like we've talked about with Interstellar. And I know we both like Tenet, but Tenet, as, as I think, you know, Zach and I said in our episode and then we talked about off mic, like Tenet is definitely, like, written by, like, a first-year film student, it seems, where they're like, things go backwards. We have to explain it. It's reverse entropy. It's a reverse measurement of something. And it's like, that's fucking bullshit. But whatever. It's, it's, it's cool to look at, you know? And so I, I find it so interesting when you get into a director and you, you know their style and then you go back and watch one of their earlier things like Memento and it's like, wow, he was doing this. you know? Like this movie for Christopher Nolan, I'm like, why did anybody ever give him more than like $50 million? All of his more recent movies cost so much goddamn money. Like there's so much going on in them, you know? like Tenet, like Interstellar, like Inception – it's like, why couldn't they just always give Christopher Nolan, like, $5 million and make him stretch a budget? Because this movie's so simple, but I agree with you. It is so goddamn compelling. I like, And that's one of the things I love. Every time I watch it, I enjoy it because it gives you such this weird feeling of just, you know, being invested in the movie. Where I can watch, you know, Inception a bunch of times. I can watch, you know... Um, I I haven't, I've only seen 10 at once, but I'm sure I'll watch that a few times. But it's not like I'm as invested in the characters. Like, they are just like big set pieces to me. This, I'm really like, I feel like I'm in uh, Leonard's shoes. I feel like I'm there going around with him. And that's one of the things that drew me to this movie. This movie is, I think, one of the closest things I've ever found in film form to ergodic literature. And ergodic literature is something, the literature is formatted in such a way that's supposed to put you in. Uh, what you're feeling. And the example I always go to, the most modern example is uh, the book House of Leaves, where there's like a, a scene where this guy is in some like dark room and he's being chased by something and he's like running away from it. And so during the scene, you're reading the book and on each page of this scene of him running and being scared, there's only maybe like eight to 10 words. And so as you're reading it, you're flipping through the pages really fast because there's not a lot of words on each page. And as you're flipping through the pages quickly, it makes you feel that you're actually running and scared in the same way. And I love that. And this movie, the way it's edited, I feel like I have anterograde amnesia. Like every scene starts and I'm like, wait, where are we now? What's going on? What happened before? Like, this really puts you in the shoes of having this disease, and I absolutely love that. Like, I love having that feeling with a movie, that that almost, like, you know, catharsis. It's not, like, a fully emotional connection. It's, like, actually feeling like I'm there in this person with what he's describing. And that is just gripping in this movie.
0: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that was one thing that I think that the articles I read online got right. Is that the way this movie was uh, probably edited more than filmed was it it put you in Lenny's shoes because you you saw the consequences of something without knowing how it happened. Oh, yeah. And that was um, that was very interesting. And and so you get that like there are a lot of movies that will like start with the end and then tell you how you got there. And this movie does that every fucking 10 minutes.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes.
0: (laughs) And then, yeah, I, I mean that I think that 's like first first off that 's what
1: drew I think so many people to this movie um, is the the structure of it and i 'm glad you mentioned the the editing because this movie got so many accolades for its editing, um, but we have to mention that uh, this movie is edited by Dodi Dorn who we know, Ben, as the editor of Matchstick Men, which we talked about in our Patreon episode. And she's a great editor. Uh, I'm very unhappy to see that she is also the editor for Zack Snyder's Justice League, which will be out at the time that this releases, even though it's not out while we're recording it. So I haven't watched it now, and I probably won't have watched it then. Uh, but she's still getting work. I, I guess that's good. But the editing is fantastic, and you're absolutely right. That's what that's what really makes this movie work. But the editing and the story structure is what drew a lot of people to this and i think everybody knows you know there's there's color sequences and black and white sequences the black and white sequences play forward or in chronological order the color sequences play in reverse chronological order and they meet somewhere in the middle of the story and i think you know this is the this is the natural extension because what 7 years be- six or 7 years before this in 94 pulp fiction comes out and really like popularizes the non-linear storytelling structure like that's why tarantino got famous where people were like oh my god like it's it's crazy you know like it blew people's minds this is nonlinear but it's nonlinear in a different way where it's not just jumping around it's really like cascading or telescoping into this weird central point that somehow works as the climax of the movie even though it is the middle of the story and and people love that and i love that too don't get me wrong but that's what drew a lot of people to this there's a great diagram, which I don't know if you saw, but a, there's a great graph on Wikipedia that, like, illustrates the relationship between the chronolo- the fabula and the sujet, the uh, the story order and the chronological order of this. And I think that gets it, you know, if, if you ever want to un- fully understand the order of this movie, uh, that's a great graph to use. But when this happens, I think this is where I want to start. This is what dooms this movie and—not this movie. This is what dooms Christopher Nolan— and kind of the thought of mass audiences for so many years to come. My, Like I said, I love this movie, but I think it's misunderstood. I think that this movie becomes like the calculus of modern film, where it's basic. Like, would you agree with me here? Let's start here, Ben. Do you think that this movie, even though it's structured strangely, once you watch it, you're pretty much like, yeah, I get it. Like you know, it's it might be structured strange, but you understand the story at the
0: end of it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely, I I definitely felt like I understood the story. I, like I said, I did think there was some ambiguity in terms of you know we don't we don't know how honest Teddy ever was with Linny, things like that. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't say there's anything like left too unanswered.
1: Yeah. Okay. Good. I, I figured we would you would think that, and I I think that as well. But the mass audiences when this came out and for the years to come and like I said, for Christopher Nolan movies for the rest of time, I think this movie becomes, like, the movie version of calculus, where if you understand it, you know it's incredibly basic. Like, once you know the story of this movie, it's like, yeah, it's, like, the story is very goddamn simple. It's just told in a really interesting way. But Mm -hmm. for people that don't fully understand it, or the people that are, I guess, uh, maybe a little more blasé or laid back in their movie-going experiences, they see this as, like, high level. Like when this movie came out, there was a sense of like status in understanding this movie. Like you'd have people come out of the theaters and be like, "I'm smart. I understand Memento." And that's what people saw this movie as. And that's what it becomes where people are like, "I'm smart. I understand Inception. I'm smart. I understand Interstellar. I'm smart. I understand, you know, Tenet." And That's why I think it's calculus, because the people who don't really understand calculus, they think it's high level. Like we've talked about before, like people saying like, oh, you know, this kid's doing calculus while in high school. And it's like, that's not special. Like calculus is very basic. And that's what I think this movie is as well. That's what Christopher Nolan is. He is like a stupid person's person's version of a smart person. Like Christopher Nolan movies are not very highly intelligent. They're just told in ways to seem difficult enough to understand on a first watch, that they create the patina of being challenging. Like, it's like, if you don't know calculus, and you tell someone, like, take the derivative of this rational function, they're going to be like, whoa, man, that's some heavy-duty math right there. But if you understand it, that's the most basic thing. And I think that's the split in, like, mass audiences start to see this as incredibly intelligent filmmaking, when it is not. It is more basic. And I think that film critics realize it's basic... But this creates that, this middle ground. It's somewhere between movies being so dense that people watch it and go, that was stupid. It didn't make sense. Like Mulholland Drive, David Lynch's, or David Lynch movies. Like they watch it and they go, that was stupid. That didn't make any sense. And it's like, no, you literally have to think about it and watch it multiple times to start to understand what he's trying to say. It's the middle ground between that, like actual film density, and what I call like turn off your brain movies. It's just difficult enough that people go, wow, that was weird, but something was there. And when they get it, they feel smart type of thing. And that I think that dooms the the 2000s movie industry for the longest time because that this movie basically devolves into – the existence of just every movie needs to have a twist ending or an unreliable narrator to make it seem smart. And I'm saying smart in air quotes because that's not inherently smart. That can be done in an intelligent way, but just because your movie lies to you, it is not a smart movie.
0: Yeah, I mean, definitely. I, I, I agree with you. I think you covered it pretty pretty adequately. The, the thing that, that I think makes makes this movie... You know, make, think make people think that they're smart for understanding it is is like you said. It's like the unreliable narration. Yes, it's yes. like oh, I figured out something that the narrator didn't know. It's like well, the narrator doesn't fucking know anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, you could figure out where he was five minutes ago, and that would be. Um, but anyway, yeah, and I I, I I agree with you. Like, it's not. I wouldn't say it's like a smart movie. The ed- the editing was smart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the movie itself is not complex no not or the at all.
1: story like, itself is not complex. yeah yeah it's so damn basic but like i said that's where i think people took the wrong message from this and it's what unfortunately christopher Christopher nolan like i think takes to heart because well we as 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 everybody knows i think if you think about it for more than two seconds or you know more than one christopher nolan movie his thing is time like he loves time like every one of his movies has something to do with fucking with time whether it's mm-hmm. the the this thing with memento and memory and time and the editing or even up to Inception, where with you know time slowing down. Interstellar, the whole relativity and time dilation and stuff like that. Tenet is basically like, what if James Bond had to fight time? You know, <laughs> <laughs> and and like even even like Insomnia is about time because Al Pacino can't sleep and he's in Alaska where the sun's always out, and so he he never has a sense of time. Uh, Dunkirk, his war movie, is about three different stories that take place at different times during the evacuation of Dunkirk. Like he loves time, and so. His whole thing with time, I think he starts with a very interesting notion of that, like doing it in memento and insomnia, and then, you know, Batman Begins, the Batman movies, like his sense of time is less pronounced there, but I still think it gets at it. He does that in interesting ways, but then he falls so deep, and I don't want to say up his own ass, because he still is a very intelligent filmmaker, but he goes way too hard. Like, I think that's one of the reasons we hate Interstellar so much is because he's just leaning into the idea that relativity and time relativism exists. He's not doing anything clever with it. He's just you – know, he's like, do you know this is a thing? Let's just, like, make f- – do fun things with that. Like the Like, there's just scenes where it's like an hour on this planet is seven years on Earth, and it's like – Yes, does that really matter to the story? Not in the goddamn slightest, because they're just running from a big wave and stuff like that. Right. And, and I think that's the problem where he just starts to mess with time so blatantly, not for a purpose, but just to, to move his stories along. But people still see it as clever. Like Interstellar, people are like, wow, time relativity, that's so smart. And it's like, once again, it's the calculus thing. It's like, if you fully understand it, it's not smart, it's basic. Like it's not very complex. Like you shouldn't think it's complex, or that there's a certain level of high status in you understanding it.
0: I mean, it's it's one of the early things that you learn in physics. <laughs> like if, you, if you start, like, if you take any kind of astronomical physics, you're gonna learn about time dilation.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: Yeah, and so I, I I agree with you. I, I like the the framing that you've put around it with the um with calculus, because as I'm sure the cinema audience knows, Rob and I are both mathematicians of different forms and calculus is literally (laughs) as simple as math
1: gets yes yes Um, i think we've said it before i don't remember where but i know it's on some recording calculus is easy and the way we know this is not because we well one not because we understand it but i think more primarily because if you ever think about calculus you realize that learning calculus is learning rules to do it as easily as possible
0: (laughs) oh yeah 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 i so i i actually Interacted with a teacher when I was in high school who said calculus isn't just about uh, shortcuts and I was like, I don't think you've seen calculus (laughs) calculus is all about shortcuts calculus is about about as Rob said, you know, learning how to not use the limit definition of the derivative. To have to take derivatives. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. It's still one of the most ridiculous things whenever I have to teach calculus. It's just like we spend so much time on derivatives, and then I love when I get to say, okay, now we're going to do integration. Remember all those things we did? Do them backwards. (laughs) Like, literally read the instructions in reverse.
0: (laughs) Yep, yep. Read them in reverse and add a constant, and...
1: Oh that that actually makes some sense though for Christopher Nolan he likes things going forwards and backwards so maybe calculus is his inspiration. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so differentiation and integration are are the the roots of these movies. Yeah. I mean if you watch Tenet that's totally what's going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. No, yeah, but I think
1: that's what that's what people take from this movie. They think they start to think that this is like intelligent filmmaking because it's so simple and so accessible. Like, I'm sure, and nothing against them, I'm sure there are people out there that in 2001, or maybe even more recently, they watched this movie, and because their attention span is so small, or they can't get away from their phone, they finish this movie, and they're like, what? That was confusing. I'm sure that happens. And that's yeah. fine. Like, like, that's that's totally fine. Like, like we said before, we need everybody. We need the Picassos, and we need the people, you know, getting high and doing characters caricatures down at the beach. We need everybody on every level. So, no, if you thought Memento was confusing, that's fine. I'm sure you exist. But that is the issue that people start to see that as, like, oh, I'm smart because I understood a movie. And especially in movies that don't take that much to understand, like... I I have more respect for somebody who's like I watched Mulholland Drive. I watched it five more times. I did some research and finally started to understand what he's going for. I have more respect for that than you watch Mento once, understand the non-linear narrative and what's going on, and then think you're hot shit. You know.
0: I I mean I'm I'm a little bit tempted to say that like I'm more impressed if you figured out Ocean's Eleven <laughs> be, be, <laughs> before they revealed it. <laughs> like like I you know not not to. Not to say that Ocean's Eleven is like particularly smart either. I mean, it's just that is a uh, how should I, it's it's a semi-complicated, n- not the surface level isn't what is happening yeah. type of type of interaction. Whereas with Memento, the surface level is what's happening.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, and
0: I think I want to emphasize like I think the Memento was smartly edited and in in such a way that it could make such a simple story make people feel intelligent mm-hmm. like that's that's something that is impressive but understanding like I, I don't know even even with the unreliable narrations like yeah, you're getting unreliable information, but you see everything yes eventually yes. Um, oh yeah yeah
1: absolutely like you do get the whole you know story in in the sense of that this timeline that that takes place over over the movie is all revealed at a certain point but like I said I just I just I think to finish up my point is that I, Christopher Nolan is a very smart filmmaker. I, I think he's done great things for the film industry. He's one of the only directors we have that, you know, can... That people actually know his name, you know? Where people are like, oh, the new Nolan movie type of thing. And that's good. We need more people like that where it's not just like, oh, the new Netflix movie. But, I, like, I still... like I, uh, to Our favorite punching bag of Interstellar where people are like, that movie is so smart. And I have to say, no, there is legitimately a scene... Where they go, we can't follow the course that we planned because there's a black hole in the way. And they stop and think. And then Matthew McConaughey goes, what if we go the other way? And they go, that just might work. And it's like, no, that's not intelligent. That's literally if you're driving and you hit construction, you take a detour. Like that is what they do but in space. It's not intelligent, but people think that movie is. Like the pinnacle of of just smart movie making. I I mean
0: I since we're punching at interstellar I got the science is wrong. Yes. <clears throat> like yes. Or, or or no. I should I shouldn't say that the science is wrong. The science is actually pretty good. The scientists are wrong. Yes, yeah, because it, it has to be. That's what people don't realize is that e-
1: even if you know if it's a it's it's a tough topic that people spend their lives learning about in in academia and physics and stuff like that, it has to be dumbed down for audiences. It has to make money. Like if this movie was actually just like a physics manifesto, nobody would have went to see it. <laughs>
0: I don't know if that's true. Like, I think they could have made the scientists smarter and not and still made a movie that that was popular. They could. At they least... could
1: have. I mean, but they, and there was no way they were going to after in, in like well, the early 2010s. I think that's what I'm getting at.
0: OK, yes. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. But I, like me as a stoned person in the audience thinking, why the hell would you make that decision? Obviously, that time dilation is going to cause you a problem. Yep. And and also the beacon hasn't been there very long. Like mm-hmm. that was, I remember that one thing, like that whole, like the whole chasing the wave or running from the wave thing. They're like, oh, the beacon's been sending a signal for seven years, except it's only been an hour <laughs> on the planet, but we should go check the planet out anyway. Yeah. Like, and I was like, what are you talking about? Why are you doing this? Yeah. And so that's, that's what makes that movie stupid. Like it's, it's, it's fucking, it's, it's dumb. Yeah. Because the science, the specialists in the movie didn't know more than me who had, only taking college level physics and talk to some physicists, like that was my level of expertise, and I and I knew more than they did, and that's what made that unbearable.
1: Yeah, that that movie is is so uh, mind-numbingly annoying to me for for that reason and for other reasons. I mean, you know, Christopher Nolan, like the the premise of that movie is does love tra- uh, can love like traverse space and time and people are like that's a very interesting sci-fi idea and i'm like that's the stupidest goddamn sci-fi idea. You want to know how i can tell? You want to know how i know that that l- love can transcend like time relativism and black holes? It's because you have people in in the real world on earth, they see some woman on the internet and they love her. If 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 ta- if love if love in air quotes can transcend just seeing somebody on a screen, it can transcend time and space, okay? Like love is is a very strong thing.
0: <laughs> I mean, love is local. Yes. in the sense that it happens in your brain. <laughs> yeah. So, what, so where you are and where they are is irrelevant. Yep, yep, exactly. So, so,
1: so yeah. This movie that—that's my biggest problem with this movie is that is the the lasting impact this movie has had on people for thinking this is smart filmmaking. Where I don't think smart or intelligent is the way to describe this movie interesting and and intriguing is the way to describe this movie
0: i mean compelling that's
1: the word yeah that I, yeah
0: it was compelling and I, I think it's it's damn good filmmaking
1: oh absolutely and i mean it, it it is it does set up christopher nolan which i say i appreciate but like i said i think he goes way. like he should just have a cap at 20 or 50 million dollars like i want to see what he does without all these crazy special effects again like, like Tenet cost a fucking bajillion dollars, you know? Like, um, uh, Interstellar cost a bajillion dollars. Like, just let him be in a room again, you know? I don't want space. I don't want all the—like, the plane crashing into the airport hangar in Tenet is fantastic. But it's like, that's just like, look what I can do with all my money. Like, when he has less amounts of money, it's like, what do I need? Well, I need a dude with tattoos— And we have an interesting story that just gets edited strangely. And that's it. That's just as good as Tenet to me. I'm fine with this minimalism.
0: I mean, I would say it's better than Tenet. I I...
1: I, I probably would put this, with the only seeing Tenet one time, I probably would put this above Tenet on my ranking. But I I think that that leads me into why I I love this movie so much, is that I wish more people— well, one, I don't really know if this is, this is the actual intent of this movie, even though you can read a lot about what Christopher Nolan thinks. It's definitely what I take from it. Um, I wish more people see this movie as a commentary on, and I would even go so far as making fun of, the way people watch movies. I, I find it so interesting, and I always have, the amount of trust that humans put in movies when they watch them is so strong, it's almost scary. It's, it's why twist endings work, because people believe what the movie is telling you as they're watching it. It's why people watch a movie and can anybody can watch a movie and can criticize like story inconsistencies later on in the narrative because they believe what the movie sets up at the start. Like, you know, people, anybody can watch a movie and then like maybe an hour in like a character will come out of nowhere. People will be like, where'd that character come from? It wasn't set up. It's like because they believe in that first 20 minutes, everything that they're shown. It's why people can have an emotional connection to a movie. They put trust in that movie. And this memento is just fully challenging that idea. Like, you cannot trust anybody in this movie. And it's not just that there's a twist some at some point. It's literally that every time the movie cuts or edits to a different part of the story, something else is going on. Like, I love the way this movie works, that right off the bat, the movie tells you, don't trust uh, Joe Pantoliano, Teddy. And we have to say, played by Joe Pantoliano, he got the duke in this movie. So what's that all about? Jerry Walsh got the duke! Walsh got the duke? He got him! He got the duke! The movie starts with him getting shot. So right off the bat, you're like, we don't believe him. Clearly he got shot. He must be some type of a bad guy. But immediately we start to believe in, like, the hotel clerk. We start to believe in Natalie, played by Carrie Ann Moss. And then as the movie goes on, it's like, no, we, don't, we shouldn't believe anything. Every time we have this new memory or restart of memory, we learn that the hotel clerk is charging him for different rooms because he can. We get the wonderful scene where Natalie literally yells at our main character, but also the audience, like, you're a fucking freak. You're a retard. You will not remember what I tell you in 15 minutes so I can do whatever the hell I want. Like, this movie is, is, I think, getting at the notion of we put way too much trust in watching movies when it's all a lie. Like, it's, like, movies themselves are lies. It's people setting things up, doing something multiple times to get it right while a bunch of cameras and people are off screen. Like, I love this movie for the theme of, well, we put way too much trust in movies. You shouldn't trust what you're seeing. And I love that idea about Memento.
0: I definitely didn't th- think about Memento in you know in that form, but what you're saying is is you know evoking some thoughts in me. S- Storytelling. So you, you mentioned humans putting putting too much trust in movies. I, I think while while maybe that's true. Uh, let's see how how should I phrase this? Um, stories matter to humans. Like stories oh, matter. to fuck on to humans. Like we, have to, we have to essentially even be able to put our own lives in the context of a story to be able to live it on a day-to-day basis to some degree. Yep. And so, so a lot of the way we get information from the world is from stories and hearing stories from other people. And like that's one of the reasons that, that we even like stories is that stories could potentially prevent us from, from experiencing certain problems in our lives and, and things like that. So, yes, it's true that humans put a lot of trust in stories. But but if you look at what stories are to humans, like that's a guarantee like that. That is a a byproduct of the very nature of what a story is. Oh, sure. Is that it's something you're supposed to trust. So so to then twist that on its head, I mean, it's, it's kind of like making an observation about the way humans are and then being like, oh, that's stupid. But at the same time, benefiting from the fact that you did that your entire life. Yes. And and that that caused you no harm and there was really nothing wrong with it. I mean, for the most part, I mean, obviously there are certain situations where, where stories are dishonest or people are lying, et cetera. But for the most part, trusting stories has served Christopher Nolan well, I'm sure.
1: Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. And no, and that, I'm I'm glad you, you bring that up, that point, because that is – it's uh, – when I was uh, thinking about this for this recording, uh, I was like, you know, is this – is it conditioning – uh, you know, how we tr- how we put trust in movies, like, we condi- is it conditioning? And I think on some level it is, but it really is not just conditioning with movies. It, like you said, it's conditioning with stories. Like, we are raised, for the most part, to believe the stories we hear, you know, because we have, in everybody's life, you have people you trust and people you might not trust, you know? Like, I feel like so many people get get raised and their parents tell them certain stories, and it's like that becomes their foundation. And this movie gets at that, you know? It's like the whole idea of, uh, that scene where uh, Lenny, Guy Pierce, uh, our lead actor who's the Mandarin from Iron Man 3 I actually refer to him as the Mandarin in my notes the whole time um, he's the guy that turns into fire at the end of Iron Man 3 and he's like, I am the Mandarin and I've only seen Iron Man 3 once but I've seen that clip like a million times because it's so funny where he's like, he's like, you might be Iron Man but I am the Mandarin and the way he says it is just ridiculous You said you
2: wanted the Mandarin You're looking right at him it's always me, Tony. Right from the
1: start.
0: I am the Mandarin!
1: But, like, he has the stuff where he's like, there's certain things I know. He's like, what's tattooed on me? I pick up this ashtray, I know what it's going to feel like. And the movie's saying, it's like, there are certain things that you trust. But then immediately, in, like, the follow-up scene, it's you have Natalie saying, like, you're a freak, you're an idiot, like, you shouldn't trust these things. Like, I think there's a great parody of this movie... Where uh the Mandarin is sitting down, and he's like, There's certain things you know. Like when I pick up this ashtray, I know what it's gonna feel like, and he picks it up and it like turns to dust or something. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I would love I would love like a, a play on that. But it, it's just kind of human nature, I think, while you're saying that people want to believe stories. And I, I love that this movie is getting at the well, maybe you should question these things. And and to get at something that you said earlier. I think we can talk about more if we want to, whether or not we think that um, Joe Pantoliano is lying at the end of the film, you know, when he's talking about Lenny and stuff like that. I don't even think, on a thematic level, it matters if he's lying or not. The point is that the movie has done so fantastically well at making the audience question his story's veracity, where you're like, is he telling the truth? Is he not? We don't know. We have no idea who to believe. And then immediately after, you are totally on board and believe it's the truth that, you know, Leonard has had the idea to lie to himself to kill Teddy. Like, I think that's the masterstroke at the end of this movie where you have one character saying something. You don't know if you should believe it or not. And then when Leonard has his like introspective moment of I'm going to lie to myself because I'm just going to keep going and you go, I believe that because he's the main character. And I wish more people thought about that, where it's like you have two characters established in this movie. One you're questioning, one you're believing completely without question.
0: The idea of this movie is why are you doing that? So re- regarding that, that thing at the end of the movie, I, I think that it makes sense that the audience – so th- so this is, this is like where the disconnect comes in. The audience should believe that Linny believes in that moment that he's lying to himself to kill Teddy. Mm-hmm. Like that – that I don't think is is up for debate, but that doesn't make it true. Yes, it, yes. So like, what Lenny believes is not necessarily the truth, and like, just by virtue of him saying he's going to lie to himself, like they're revealing that what he believes isn't necessarily the truth. Mm-hmm. And so it's like that's the part that just con- confused me. Like I said, when I was reading about it, it's like nobody nobody seems to continue to question Teddy af- after the end of the movie, and and I I think that's a mistake. I think I think Teddy would have said anything to save himself oh yeah
1: yeah absolutely and and i think i think once again this is what i think people didn't understand it got it's so unfortunate that this movie gets overshadowed by people thinking it's smart by this interesting very compelling storytelling structure but the near the beginning of the movie when uh leonard is at the restaurant with natalie he's talking about his dead wife and he says something like i i don't want to wake up every morning and think that she's still alive Like, he says that to her, and so in that scene, he believes that, but then we know that at another point in the movie, in his, like, memory, uh, when his memory resets, which is earlier than that diner scene chronologically, he's setting up all that shit of his wife's in his hotel room and hires the prostitute so he can think she's still alive. Like, the movie is very, I think, very blatantly telling us, like, don't believe anybody like this this idea of memory and belief is so fluid and so untrustworthy that that's what we should be taking but it's like i said it sucks that people are like man this movie's smart it's confusing it's complex and it's like no the the movie is not complex and it's telling you that you shouldn't think you shouldn't trust anything you shouldn't even trust yourself at a certain point
0: that's kind of getting at human inconsistency so so um, cause, cause we see that scene where he's like, you know, he sets up with that prostitute and she's like, that's all you want. You want me to wait till you fall asleep and then slam the door. And, uh, and, you know, of course, whenever we first see that, we, we, I think we don't know if I'm having trouble. Like, I, I think we don't know the setup when we first see. Yeah. Him you just, you just,
1: uh, hear the door slam. He, th- he, get, he thinks it's his wife. We know it can't be his wife um but then he opens the door and the and the hooker's like doing cocaine in the bathroom or something yeah and she and, she's she's, like, said, <laughs> and i love I, I that's one of the there's a, a there's a good bit of things in this movie that i find absolutely hilarious in in a weird way but i love that like he he's so fucked up he has no idea what's going on he like he's in this state of like thinking his wife might still be alive and he opens the door the hooker like just finished doing cocaine and she says was it good for you and so you think that they, like, had sex or something, but then it's yeah. revealed later that she just, like, sat next to him and waited for him to fall asleep, then slammed the door. And she's like, was it good for you? Because she's so <laughs> fucking confused about what just
0: happened and why she was hired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, de- definitely. Um, so, so back to what I was saying is, you know, we're getting at, at the human inconsistency. Like, on some level, he wants to hold on to this memory of his wife uh, because he loves her and, and, he, and it hurts that she's gone, etc., uh, but then later we see him burning some of her belongings. Mm-hmm. I think the same belongings that that he gave to the prostitute in that scene yep. or the escort or whatever you want to call her. And he says, I've probably done this like a million times. I've burned truckloads of your stuff, but I uh, but I can't remember to forget you.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so while, yes, he he does want to keep her memory alive. He doesn't. I do think it is true that he doesn't. Like, he simultaneously holds both both those those uh, feelings like he wants her to, to hold on to her being alive but he also doesn't want to have to hold on to her being alive yes and um, I I think you know th- that was something that like whenever whenever he said it in the movie I was like oh shit like that is the way that this situation would play out if you had this condition like you would wake up every day and not know that your wife was dead
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Um, until you look at your tattoos or whatever and, and, and you could make the choice to live in that in that delusion, and just never know that she's dead, and just always think that she's in the bathroom or something, and it would never matter. Yeah, yeah. Because it would never build up, and her absence would. I mean, it would probably still be felt physiologically, and maybe that's why you couldn't su- achieve that forever. But I don't know. I I definitely think that his inconsistency with regards to that is very human, and as you pointed out, it is evidence that we shouldn't believe everything he's saying. Mm-hmm. But it also doesn't make it not true if, if that makes sense
1: oh sure sure I, I I think at another level with that idea this movie gets at you know at, at a certain point we as people need to realize that there there isn't just absolutes like there there are shades of gray and we have to choose what we believe and I I, I love that idea because I love that idea in this movie because you know memory and belief are so strongly or maybe more generally when what goes on inside people's heads, they are so strongly tied to that when a movie, like, challenges those notions, like those steadfast notions, I love that idea. Like, this movie gets to the idea of memory. Like, memory can be unreliable. And I think that just bothers everybody at a certain point, you know? It might not be, like, a constant thing. Like, the moment as a, as a person you realize that your memories might not be accurate, that that causes some, like, angst.
0: Yeah, well, of course. I mean, your, your memories... I, I think that an important thing to know is that your memories don't exist as a way of recording information. Yes. Um, Like they they are not like in terms of everything we understand about memory, they are not there to be perfect records of the past. They're there to help you make future decisions. Mm -hmm. And so your interpretations of what happened may not be accurate. Your memories of what happened are definitely not accurate. Yeah. Because they're memories of your interpretation. That being said, every time you remember something, you can change it hmm. And and I think one of the the best things we understand about memory is that every time you remember something, you're actually remembering the last time you remembered it. Yeah. Or or something like that. And so, like, absolutely. Memory is completely fallible. And I think they even mentioned it in this, like eyewitness testimony is is not. Oh, yeah. Really respected.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. By police
0: officer. And it's not it's just not very useful. Like, it would be great if it was, but it's but it's not.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. That that's always one of like the best things is when you read the actual like reports and studies on eyewitness testimony. Like you, like there, I think one of the famous cases in like some city it was probably New York or L A or something. Like uh, like a child just got abducted like right on the street, and they and there was a lot of people around and no one stopped it unfortunately, but they there was like a shitload of witnesses for them to interview, and it was like you know they they lined up like the uh the slew of information they got from the witnesses and it was like what did the person look like what were they wearing what kind of car was it you know and it was like literally the entire spectrum of colors was given for the car like every possible description of the person was given and it's it was it was like you know 35 people just in this this very small radius around where it happened and they got wildly different results like the variance was ridiculous and i love that stuff but that that's you know not good for The kid getting abducted, of course, but it's interesting as a study as realizing that memory and recall are really, really bad, even in that short term. And I think this movie gets at it in the short term with, you know, him just constantly being like, oh, my memory reset, what's going on? But I do love the idea, once again, not getting at whether I think Joe Pantoliano's story at the end is true, just the idea that the story of Sammy Jankis could have been confounded by Leonard over the years to fit his own narrative. So it's like that long-run memory uh, confabulation as well.
0: So that that's the thing that actually gives me some amount of pause ab- about that is he mentions the you know the research in that you should be able to learn through conditioning um, you know because that's a different part of the brain. Yep. But I don't think that he would be able to fabricate a story over a long period of time. Okay. Because I, 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 I'm I not a psychologist. And maybe if you are a psychologist and you're listening and you know more about this than I do, <laughs> that I would love to hear it. But I really, like, I don't think that he could fabricate a story mm-hmm. and and then still remember it later. Like, I don't know. It would have to be a very weird way of thinking about this story for him to be able to use that long-term conditioning to be able to change it that way.
1: Sure, sure. I, I don't know either. But yes, if, if somebody in the audience does know, definitely, you know, write in, because that's a very interesting topic. But to get at what you said before, like, we, people use their memories to make future decisions. That's yet another reason I love this movie is because, you know, we can watch it. And clearly you did, heard that point of the movie, and you use your memory and knowledge of these things to say, I don't think that could happen. Where somebody else might use their knowledge and their memories to go, oh, of course that would happen, you know. Right. And it's right. it's just it's wonderful. I love that this movie actually you know has that, and the movie says it fantastically as well. There's a point where Leonard says something like, "We all need mirrors to remind ourselves of who we are." Like this movie is a mirror. Like it makes you think about your own memory and to a certain extent. And, and I love that. I wish more people thought about it in that sense, where more people are like, oh, yeah, that's the memory movie, you know? <laughs> and it's like, it's like, well, what does that mean about your own memory, you know? <laughs> I, I I think people even need to... Something we said, what is it? The the concept of um what, event destroyers, I think. Like, everybody's yeah. gone through that. You walk into a room, and you're like, why am I in here? And it's like, if the, if you watch this movie, and you go, man, that movie's smart, but you don't think that you've had this, like, basic, you know ancillary form of retro anterograde amnesia in your own life like you're missing the point i think like this movie should make you think like oh fuck i've forgotten shit like and i don't and I, that sucks this dude it must suck for him like 10 times worse
0: <laughs> oh yeah yeah 100 percent. i mean he he even says at some point living his life is almost impossible yeah which yeah. uh it, it occurred to me definitely like while i was watching this movie that i don't know why he didn't kill himself Oh, yeah, yeah. There's certain points in this
1: movie where he gets like really, really – he seems very, very upset with his status. And there's a line that I love where he says something like, The present is trivia that I scribble down on fucking notes. And I'm like, god damn, like that—that that is a rough instance to to live your life type of thing. (laughs) Like having to leave yourself notes and then – and even one of the – it's not focused on, but one of his tattoos says something like, you know – like notes can be uh, misleading or or don't trust everything or something like that, you know? And I love that setup in the movie for so much of the movie we see on the back of Natalie's photo, something's crossed out and immediately you're just like, okay, so this is not a perfect system. You know, once again, you're getting this subtle notion that you shouldn't believe anything. And one, one thing that I love, which took me a while to pick up on uh, seeing this movie a few times is what I mean. A while to pick up on when you see the copy of Teddy's driver's license um, the one that says, like, John Edward Gamble or whatever. The expiration date is February 29th, 2001. 2001 was not a leap year. That date does not exist. And it's another notion that you should not believe a goddamn thing you see in movies, you know? It's it's like, well, on that thematic level, but also in this movie. Like, there are so many lies that you were thrown that it's, it's really getting at the idea, and I absolutely love it.
0: Yeah, so, you know... I'm glad you brought up the, that license thing because I definitely like when that was first introduced, it's like, Oh shit. Like, okay. So Teddy's the bad guy. And and then you learn that Natalie's manipulative and you're like, Oh shit. Maybe she made up this photo to yeah. get him to kill Teddy. Yeah. And then, and then like you learn more and you're like, I don't even know that Natalie knows who Teddy is exactly <laughs> other, other than that, Teddy was there, you know, was the reason that her boyfriend died. Yep. Yep. So like, I don't know that Teddy knows, or I don't know that Natalie knows that Johnny Gamble is Teddy mm-hmm. and like, so I don't know that that was definitely a trip. Um, of course, <laughs> you, you do learn that the license plate actually does belong to Teddy yep, Johnny Gamble. Yep.
1: I d- one of my biggest issues with the movie, like, uh, is that I don't like in terms of storytelling, and I think thematically for a conclusion of the movie it does make sense, but I don't like that he tattoos the license plate number on himself because I I don't I. I'm not a person that thinks movies should continue or do continue when they're over. You know, like, I I don't think this movie needs a sequel is what I'm saying. But the way the movie ends when he has that tattooed on him and clearly the end of the chronological order is he shoots Teddy. The only thing that I can think of and I have a problem with it is, well, is he just going to go from state to state finding random people with that license plate and just kill them? Because now that's on his body. Like, fact number six is that license plate. So he's going to take that to heart. And it's going to be like like well that that's that's too kind of clear cut type of thing when when him saying i'm going to keep lying to myself to get at those who wronged me basically he kills teddy and what's going to happen? He's going to be like, I need to find this license plate. Oh, it belongs to this guy that died. Oh, I did it already. Reset. It belongs to this guy who died. Oh, I did it already. He somehow ends up in a different state, finds a different person that might not even be John G with that license plate, and kills them for some reason. That's my one issue. I wish he didn't tattoo it on himself. I wish he had like written something, like written it down or something like that. Because sure. the license plate seems too fixed. Concrete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know all the other hints are very, very. They're specific, but they're not specific enough to cause problems like John or John or James G is the name male drug dealer or something like that. Like those are all pretty vague, like that can lead him to people, but it's not going to lead him to a specific person. The license plate will lead him to a specific goddamn person every single time.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely see where you're coming with that. And like that does kind of invalidate the idea that he's been doing this and he is continuing to give himself a mystery so that he can never solve it yeah which which again comes down to do we really believe teddy that that's what's happening
1: Mm -hmm.
0: or is it more something more like teddy is convinced him that that's what happened that's what's happening so that he can use Linia as a hitman exactly exactly yep i definitely agree that that if teddy is act is right about the fact that he's given himself this unsolvable puzzle and that's why there's pages missing from the police report, etc. Mm-hmm. that he would not have done that. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so, or at least I, you know, without some kind of significant change to the situation, he wouldn't have done that. And so it could, you could argue that him finding out Teddy's betraying him is this significant change, but you could also argue that that means Teddy's lying. Yeah, oh,
1: oh yeah, exactly. And and once again, I I I love at the end I love the fact that you know it we you you question the validity of what Teddy's saying because it gets at that idea like I said that this movie is a commentary on how we trust movies. Like like I said the twist ending is is a great example of this. Like there's a reason that twist endings work for people is because we believe what the movie sets up. But at the same time, a twist ending is good because you start to believe that twist ending, you know? It's like the 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 thing that started twist or you know popularized twist endings and then and then you know made them what they are today eventually is the sixth sense like the twist ending that bruce willis is dead at, at the end of the sixth sense works because we think he was alive the whole time but it also works because once you watch or once mass audiences watch that movie and it's revealed that he's dead people go okay i believe that he's dead like a twist ending wouldn't work if, one, you started watching the movie and Bruce Willis is a, a social worker and people go, hmm, I think he's actually a dog. I don't think he's a person. Twist ending wouldn't work then because we don't, like, question the, the fact that Bruce Willis is a person. But the twist ending would also not work if the movie reveals that he's been dead the whole time and you went, hmm, I don't think he was dead. I think he was an alien the whole time. Like, <laughs> we have belief in what these movies are telling us, and I sure. think that's what this movie's getting at is that, you know – even at the end, it's the climax of the movie. People are conditioned or they, they live their lives saying, oh, that's – we should believe that, what happens at the end of the movie. But this movie's masterstroke is that it makes you question that big climax where you go, I don't know what I should believe anymore. and And that's wonderful. And the more recent example that always drove me crazy – is um, at the end of Star Wars Episode 8, The Last Jedi. There's the scene where Adam Driver tells Daisy Ridley, he's like, Your parents were nobodies. Because the whole episode 7 sets up, like, who were Ray's parents. And then at the end yeah. of the movie, Kylo Ren is like, Your parents were nobodies. And everybody was like, That was such a letdown. Like, her parents should have been somebody. Like, why are her parents just nobodies? Like, Ryan Johnson's ruining Star Wars, blah, blah, blah. That's a, that's a discussion for another time. And my initial response was, He's the bad guy. Why Why would you you believe him? Yeah, it's like, why is everybody taking what he said to be so accurate? And it's because it's a big reveal at the end of the movie. And people just are inherently predisposed to believe something that happens at the end and the beginning of a movie. And I love that this, this memento makes you question that idea. Because I, I I think we're both fans of always question things, you know, like under like you should actually decide for yourself whether it's true or not. And this movie really puts it in your face like, you know, you shouldn't really trust anybody because one to get it. I think another idea of this movie is just the idea of human nature. If you're as Natalie says in this movie, if you're the memory guy, people are going to take advantage of you. People are going to constantly take advantage of you. And that's something that, you know, should also be tattooed on Leonard's body. Like, don't trust anybody that says, like, they don't know you or something like that because they probably met you. They probably know what's going on, and they're going to use you.
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh, something's kind of bothering me about this point about, you know, tr- trusting stories and, and whatever. And I, I, think the, uh, I think the crux of it is, is whenever somebody's telling you a story, they're introducing you to a world, and the only things you can know about it are what they tell you. Sure, sure. Or Or show you. And and they could potentially show you things that that contradict what they've told you, et cetera. But at the end of the day, that's all the information you have is what you can what you can take from it. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, so I mean, yeah, you you could choose to watch every story and believe that maybe none of it's true. But it like what do you gain from that? I guess. Oh oh, s- absolutely. I, I think you're I think what you just
1: said gets at the idea of why so many people, why the masses hate the the twist being it was all a dream because they believed those things. You know, there, there's certain enjoyment to a twist ending because you believed some things and you found out that some things were not as they seemed. People hate the idea of everything they believed was wrong because that seems to, you know, bother them on a more philosophical level type of thing.
0: It feels unfair.
1: Sure, sure. I've, like I have, my time. I've never had an issue with um the it was all a dream trope because... Guess what? Every movie you've ever seen is a lie. It never happened, you know. So what yeah. the hell does it matter? But I know I'm in the minority there. But but even there, it's it's stories and movies playing with you know how much can we take away from our audience's belief type of thing.
0: Right, right.
1: It's why it's wildly interesting. I wish more people, like I said at the start, thought about this movie in that way rather than you know this is the calculus of our of our modern filmmaking. <laughs>
0: well, you know, you've mentioned kind of consistently that we at the end we are put in a state where we don't know what to believe and and it's it's wildly accurate that that's not how people perceive this movie and that's so that's so strange to me yeah because that was the only thing that i took from the ending is like or not the ending but that scene where he's talking where teddy's revealing you know about him having killed his wife mm-hmm. the sammy Jenkins way and stuff and i was like it would 100% be the easiest thing in the world for Teddy to be like, oh, that Sammy Jenkins story was actually about you. And like, why wouldn't I tell that to somebody who doesn't know anything? Like, yeah. Yeah. And the fact that people who have written reviews about this movie didn't even kind of question that is, just, is baffling to me. And I didn't think about it on, on the level of just because they trust the ending of the movie. And maybe that is what's going on. But it, it seems so apparent that the rest of this movie is, as you've said, don't trust this movie yes yeah don't trust Teddy like the whole time we've been told not to trust Teddy and we find out I think that Teddy is the cop that's on the phone with him and he later he's like oh there's this cop that's been bothering you and he when you won't answer the phone he slides pictures under your door yep and then later he's like that was actually me it's like t- Teddy like has blatantly lied in this movie in a way that we can verify yep yep not just based on what's written on the back of his picture. So I don't I I guess I'm just kind of hung up on the fact that that the people who have reviewed this movie believe Teddy at the end. Yeah. I yeah,
1: I have that same problem. I like I like I said at the start I think this movie is is misunderstood or maybe not misunderstood like cuz last week I think like I mentioned there and explained I think Monkey Bone is fundamentally misunderstood. I think people took the wrong message from this movie or or they they didn't take it at full level because you you are absolutely right. We have seen Teddy lie in this movie and in And in terms of, you know, storytelling with Memento specifically, there are certain things that we have to believe, you know, there's no reason to think like, oh, that one chunk of the movie or this color segment was a dream or anything like that. We're not like I'm not going that far, but we've also seen Natalie lie in this movie. Like that's a wonderful scene where she's like, you know, she like leaves, sits in her car, comes back in when his memory resets just to fuck with him type of thing.
0: Oh, and that scene's even worse because she hides all the pens. Oh, my she first God,
1: pins. I fucking that. That is my favorite scene in the movie where you have no idea why she's just grabbing all the pens in her living room. And then at the end, he's defeated because he doesn't have a pen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm glad you bring that up. I love that scene so much because he's just like, I got to write this down. I got to focus. I can't find a goddamn pen. I love movies that would not work in the modern era. If he had a smartphone, he would open up his note app. He would say it in – or like speech to text or he would type it in and that whole scene would not exist. Well, I love uh, the fact that this movie is just like so of its time where he can't
0: find a pen. <laughs> so I, I get – I take your point but I actually kind of disagree with you because I don't think he would trust notes on his smartphone. He, he only trusts notes because he's handwritten them. Like he trusts Oh Sure, his sure.
1: Uh, well, then maybe take away the text on a smartphone and put in a, uh, like a voice recorder type of thing.
0: Okay, yeah, sure. Um, oh, God, but then you'd have to listen to it all? Exactly, oh,
1: be- which is, I think, one of the things, because voice recorders even existed back in, in 2000, 2001, but I think that would be uh, that would make this movie so goddamn slow. If it's yeah. like, could you imagine, even just putting yourself in Leonard's shoes, if, if your memory has like a span of, say, 15 to 20 minutes, and you'd have to spend a good chunk of that listening to things, you would have so little time to do anything. <laughs>
0: So and th- this actually kind of connects to to his inability. So, so why I think he couldn't have modified the Sammy Jenkins story? Mm-hmm. Um, because if he could have, why wouldn't he just record things he needed to remember and listen to them for days on end? Oh
1: sure, sure. Like do his own type of conditioning. You're saying?
0: Yeah, yep. Like if he if he could just modify the Sammy Jenkins story, why couldn't he just modify his his beliefs about the past? Sure, by sure. by doing that. So I I really don't think. Like that's what I'm saying. Like I think Teddy was full of shit. I think Lenny's wife did die in the, in the burglary, and Teddy was just is just full of shit. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I,
1: I I guess to say it uh, final uh, specifically, I also do not believe Teddy at the end of this movie. Um, I also don't believe anybody because like, like I was saying, we see Teddy lie, we see Natalie lie, um, we see the uh, the hotel clerk lie. You know, with the the multiple rooms and stuff like that. Uh, we even see it's—it's it's not really a memory thing. It's just in—in in one color chunk, so one like kind of loop of memory. We see Guy Pierce. It's not really lying, but we see him fuck up when he goes to the hotel and he kicks open the wrong door when he's trying to get Dodd. Like yeah. everything, you shouldn't believe. Like everything, whether or not it's memory or belief, it's like it's so easy to make mistakes, whether oh. it be based on memory or be based on you know. I guess technically that is a case of memory because what Guy Pierce quickly looks at the note, it's room six. He somewhat – for some reason thinks it's nine, kicks some random dude uh, in his hotel room, and then he's, he goes, sorry, and then moves back to room
0: six. <laughs> uh, so I, I'm glad you brought that up because that – after we get the scene where he's in a bathroom and he's holding a bottle of alcohol. Yes. He's just like, I don't feel drunk. And then he takes a shower, and I thought that that was so fucking – like that. that was actually smart. You put a guy with no memory in a bathroom and and he's like I don't have to use the restroom. Yep. I'm probably in here to take a shower. Yeah, oh, yeah, I thought that was like that was great. Oh yeah, that that's that's a wonderful scene.
1: Um also because I just I putting putting yourself in the shoes of Dodd who comes into the hotel room and then, you know, he like gets attacked by Guy Pierce who's, who's just naked. used the shower. Could you imagine how fucking crazy that would be? You go into like your hotel room and you just get beat up by a naked man that used your shower.
0: <laughs> like, well, I find that so strange. <laughs> and, like, in the part before that, like, we see him, we see Dodd chasing him, and, and Lenny's like, okay, where am I? Oh, What's that's so on? good,
1: you know, yeah. Why
0: am I running? Oh, I'm chasing this guy. Nope, he's chasing me. That is so, like, so funny, yeah. <laughs> like, I, they committed to his memory problem, and they did it so solidly. Like that was, that was those two things in particular. I was just like, fuck, they really nailed this. Like that's what would happen. If, oh yeah, if you lost your memory in that way, yeah, a- you wouldn't absolutely. be sure if you were being chased or chasing.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's it's so. I mean, the whole kind of the the bulk of the movie is the color scenes that are going in reverse chronological order. I love how you know we get to see so much stuff, and it gets it gets set. Up, well, technically, we see the payoff, and then it gets set up later on. But you know, it's like there's the scene where him and Teddy are in the car. And Teddy's like, roll your window up, but it's it's shattered. And we get to see how it gets shattered and stuff like that. Yep. And and I love that that, like the scene you just mentioned, it's hilarious. when he's like, what am I doing? I'm chasing this guy. No, he's chasing me. Like, that's absolutely hilarious. But it's just like we get an action scene out of nowhere. Like, the nothing that we've seen in the movie makes us think there's going to be any type of chase or anything like that. And then it just happens. And that's like a yeah. wonderful type of like, oh, like I'm. I'm still watching this movie, you know? it's like there's there's more going on than I thought type of thing, and it's awesome,
0: yeah i I really like honestly, I don't think I have any problems with this movie. Uh, like I don't think there was anything about it that that just didn't sit right. like I think they I don't think they made any mistakes with regards to his memory. like I think it's a solid fucking movie, oh yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. it's uh it is it is fantastic. like I said, I love it. I, I love the 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 idea of it the the movie itself like I've seen it so many times and it's I'm just like always enthralled by it I love the message of it and and there's just so many scenes that are so well done like I love the uh, like the pen scene and Natalie like screaming at him and I love how she just leans into him like she destroys him like calling him like the freak and the retard and she's like I can do whatever the hell I want to like totally degrades him.
2: I can say whatever I want, and you won't remember. I could call your wife a fucking whore, and we could still be friends. Calm down. Easy for you to say. You can't get scared. You don't know how, you fucking idiot.
1: Take it easy. This has nothing to do with me.
2: Well, maybe it does. How the fuck would you know? You don't know a fucking thing. You can't get scared, but hey, can you get angry? Yes. Oh, you pathetic piece of shit. I can say whatever the fuck I want, and you won't have a fucking clue, you fucking retard. Shut your mouth. You know what? I'm gonna use you. I'm telling you now because I'm gonna enjoy it so much more if I know that you could stop me if you weren't such a fucking freak. Did you lose your pen? Well, that's too bad, freak. Otherwise, you could write yourself a little note about how much Natalie hates your retarded guts and that I called your wife a fucking whore.
0: Hey, don't say another fucking word. About
2: your horrible wife? I read about your condition letter. You know what one of the causes of short-term memory loss is? Venereal disease. Maybe your cunt of a fucking wife sucked one too many diseased cocks and turned you into a fucking retard. You sad, sad freak. I can say whatever the fuck I want, and you won't remember. We'll still be best friends, or maybe even lovers
1: i love this the black and white scene where he's on the phone and he like takes off the bandage and his tattoo says never answer the phone like that is just such a great little reveal uh oh god it's it's such a simple visual but it's so arresting just a dude with a bunch of tattoos all in different fonts some going forward some going like mirror image it's so perfectly simple that it works so well it's fantastic and like i said Do it. Just, I want Christopher Nolan to make a movie that costs less than $100 million again.
0: (laughs) You know, I'm glad you you brought us back to that scene with Natalie because, you know, I mentioned that she hides the pens. Like, that scene is, she is is so manipulative in that scene. Yes. Uh, And, of course, course later we learn that she's manipulative and using him in every way that she can because it's pretty obvious that he was involved in the death of her boyfriend. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which I I, I I maybe actually I said I didn't have any problems. So there's one thing I don't entirely understand, which is why he took the boyfriend's clothes. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> but she, she comes in. She hides the pins like like she she leaves. She comes back. She's like, Dodds after me. I need your help. I did what you said. Yeah. Or, or, you know, whatever. And uh, no, yeah, yeah I, I, I jumped the gun a little bit. But she's like, he's coming here. I got to hide all the pins for some reason. And I got to tell you about this. And then she leans into him, she makes him hit her. She leaves again and comes back and is like, Dodd beat the shit out of me." Yep. And I did he beat the shit out of me because of you. Like I need you to kill him. And like that was just so beautiful of oh, a yeah. manipulative tapt- tactic. I mean, obviously disgusting also.
1: But... Oh, yeah, it is. It is straight up evil, but I mean, I like I said I love it because it's like, you know, implicitly because we like to trust movies, like I've been saying, you know, we, right off the bat, we see Teddy get shot, we know, we think he's the bad guy, we think, we have this feeling not to trust him. And then we get the scene with uh, Natalie at the diner, and, you know, she's, like, asking about Leonard's wife, and it's a very emotional scene, and implicitly we trust her. And then the movie's like, no, go fuck yourself. She's just as bad as everybody else in this movie.
0: She's maybe worse. Yeah. Um, yeah. (laughs) Well, and, like, so that, that was something that was interesting, too, is like they, the first time we see Natalie, she she looks battered. So, like, you know, thoughts that come to mind are like, oh, she's in some kind of abusive relationship. Maybe yep. maybe Lenny intervened in that somehow just by chance. And that's how he got these cuts on his head that are, are here the whole time and never actually explained. So they, they set her up to be an incredibly sympathetic character. Yes. Uh, or a character that you should have sympathy for, rather. And. And it is a complete misdirection. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Uh,
0: as, as Bill Burnham would say, it, it is a rock hard misdirection.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. I even love the um, when she leaves and she's like, I'm going to use you and I'm telling you this because you won't remember. She goes and she like sits in her car and she just watches him because she yep. knows that his memory will, will have reset when he like stops looking out at her. Like, it's such a nice little touch. Because it's like, I remember one of the first the first few times I watched this, I was like, how does she know when his memory is going to reset? Like, it doesn't seem to be on, like, a fixed timer, you know? Because all the color scenes are different lengths, and, and there's definitely like certain things we don't see, like, where he drives somewhere and stuff like that. But it's wonderful because he's freaking out. He's looking for a pen, and he keeps looking at her just sitting in her car. Like, so she's going to know... Based on the interaction they just had, and he's pissed at her, when he stops looking at her and, like, looks confused and doesn't know where he is, that that's when she should make her move. And it's, yeah. like, it's so wonderful, sim- wonderfully simple that they're able to, like, telegraph when he's going to reset type of thing. It's just well, – it's it's wonderful.
0: <laughs> so in that particular scene, I, I actually I, – you brought the event destroyers earlier, and I was kind of put in that same mindset of, like, whenever she slams the car door mm-hmm. – that's like triggering him to be in a different memory. Yes, but yes. It's like that is an event destroyer for him. He's like, oh, something new is happening.
1: Mm-hmm. And um, oh, yeah, and they do that throughout the whole movie. the there's some like this door slamming with the prostitute. Um, when Teddy first or not Teddy, when Leonard first shows up in the in the uh, the boyfriend's car at the outside of the bar. Like the uh the the door of or the the lid of the trash of the dumpster slams like there's definitely like certain noise or sound cues at the start and ends of every one of those color sequences that is like you know definitely what you're getting at like some notion of like this this reset type of thing like something that like takes him back into reality or something like that. And
0: I, whenever that first happened in the movie, I was like, oh shit! Like her, because I had the thought I was like, how long? is this going to last? Like, when does she know to come back in? And then when she, when she slammed the door and it distracted him, I was like, Oh fuck. Like she might be able to force that to happen.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah.
0: Yep. And I I thought that was pretty interesting.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's, it's so well done. It's so interesting. It's so compelling. Like we've been saying, it's just, it's just absolutely fantastic. And then, like I said, there's certain things that you can even think about in the movie that are also wildly interesting. Like I said, I love thinking about, well, What would happen if I went into my, like, bathroom, and I heard, like, the shower, I heard someone in the shower, and then I got beat up by a naked man? That's a very interesting thing to think about, you know? I also, like, the the end of, as we are told the Sammy Jenkins story, the end is absolutely horrific, like, with the wife being like, it's time for my shot, you know? Like one, the wife has to sit there and which we get to see she's like just destroyed emotionally that, you know, Sammy Jenkins keeps giving her the shot. And she's just like, oh, wow, like I'm going to die and go into a coma. But then even further, imagine Sammy Jenkins sees his wife in a coma, forgets about it sees her in a coma again. Like, how long did it take for him to call somebody and be like, my wife needs help? Like, could you imagine, well, the wife, like, realizing that she's going to go into a coma or diabetic shock or whatever, and then the other side of it, this dude repeatedly seeing and not knowing why his wife is
0: just laying there unresponsive. Like, that is oh, yeah. horrifying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how many times did he just think she was asleep? Yeah, yeah, like, could you
1: imagine where it's like, he's watching TV, looks over his wife, oh, she fell asleep, you know? Then the next memory loop, he's like, oh, honey, blah, blah, blah. She doesn't say anything. He goes over and, like, she's unresponsive. He freaks out, forgets about it. And how many times that repeats and how many different things he could think. Like, that oh, yeah. is that is like a a Black Mirror episode in and of itself. It's just that hard, <laughs> like, reliving the horrifying moment of not knowing why your wife is dead.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess Sammy Jenkins, since he had this, this condition beforehand, he still to this day would not know his wife is dead.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, cuz what we we get Sammy Jenkins is like um we get the shots of him in the uh, in the mental institution it seems. Yeah. And and I oh that's another great scene where I love when Leonard's saying something like I looked at Sammy Jenkins and I thought he was faking or he was he what
0: he wasn't being totally I truthful he, i thought he recognized exactly that I saw a glimmer of recognition and he says then i realized that you fake it
1: people just fake it yes and i'm like you're goddamn right people just fake it it's like everybody in the fucking world like you know somebody says something they're not familiar with they will play it off as they are familiar with it you know and yeah, try sure. and fill in the gaps later and that's exactly what you would do if you had this memory loss be like oh sammy you remember me and he'd be like yeah, yeah, you know, it's like the the Simpsons joke of where like Bart and Milhouse, Bart says like, "Do you know what this means?" and Milhouse goes, "Yeah, but you say it first. And <laughs> it's it's like that. It's like that is human nature to a T, where we will be. We don't want to like show our, our shortcomings. We're so insecure, so we will just fake it till we make it, type of thing.
0: Oh, definitely. And I mean, there's a, there's a lot of room for uh, that to become incredibly maladaptive for people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that that is human nature to. Not want to appear stupid.
1: Yes. Uh, I, oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Or or maybe on a more basic level and to not want to appear to be that kind of vulnerable. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's the level of insecurity there. Um, so I, I wanted to bring it up because I mentioned it. Uh, Black Mirror. Um, well, one, I think it is worth mentioning that if you actually like read what professionals in the field of like, you know, neuroscience and memory say about this movie back when it came out and still to this day like the experts are like this is the best depiction of anterograde amnesia in film ever nice. and and so yeah and it's so like actually well done um, you know and then the one of the ones they say is like the worst examples is uh, the Adam Sandler movie Fifty First dates which came out in like 2004 or 2006 or something yeah. they're like they're like that is done for comedic effect like there's not a lot of reality there you know but like here they're like this this really puts you in the mindset like with with Leonard and with the Sammy Jankis story um, have you ever watched any of the Black Mirror episodes after Netflix bought it? Because we, when I, we live near, we watched it when it was still on BBC. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Okay, so there, there is, I watched like the first Netflix season and I absolutely hated it. But there was one thing that always stood out to me as just one of the worst things I've ever seen. I don't remember the name of the episode, but it gets it memory. It gets it memory and it gets the idea of how memory is unreliable. And so the episode sets up that there is, like, this insurance person or this person that works for an insurance company, and their job is, like, after an accident, they will go to witnesses with this machine that basically turns the witnesses' memories into a visualization. Like, like you okay. like can watch it on a TV screen. And this is, like, the new technology in insurance. It's Black Mirror, so there's always some weird technology, of course, and this is the new technology. But very early on in the episode... It sets up that memory is unreliable, and there's a specific scene where for like some little car accident for this insurance thing, she goes to a witness, and the the witness is describing things. It's showing up on the TV screen, and he's like, oh, someone walked by, and they had a yellow jacket on, and you see on the screen this person with a yellow jacket, but the insurance Mm -hmm. person says, oh, actually, we have a photo like an actual from a security cam or something that shows that that jacket was red and the guy's like oh that's right and the jacket in the visualization like switches from yellow to red and so they mm-hmm. set up that memory is unreliable the episode sure. goes on the episode goes on and there's something where this this other woman who like committed a murder is has to get hooked up to this machine but doesn't want like the murder to be revealed so she's like running from uh, running from the insurance person the episode ends with her having to kill other people that like witnessed the murder cuz they don't want She just doesn't want any ties. You know, the the insurance person doesn't want the machine to be able to, like, show that she was there or whatever. So she goes, she kills, like, a husband and wife. As she kills the husband and wife, she realizes that their infant child watched her do it. And they know the insurance person would hook the machine up to the child to see what happened. So she kills the child. The stupid black mirror twist is, one, she didn't have to kill the child because it turns out the child was blind. But two, this is the thing. There was a hamster in the child's room that also saw the murder. The insurance person hooks up the machine to the hamster, and it reveals that she's the murderer. And this is why that's stupid. Because the movie – not the movie. The show sets up that human memory is unreliable, but the climax banks on the fact that they get perfect recall from a hamster. It is the stupidest fucking thing. And I, I always think of that where I'm like, memento? Great story about memory, it makes me think about memory, what people mean with belief in memory when they watch movies. Fantastic. Black mirror, perfect recall from a hamster. You could not get two more extremes of intelligent or complex and interesting and stupid and basic. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's that's pretty funny. Um perfect recall from a
1: hamster yes yes and I, like, I remember talking to people about this and they were like yeah but black mirror it wasn't bad you know and i'm like no it was terrible they hook up a fucking memory machine to a hamster like that is the dumbest thing i've ever heard of I mean, the, obviously... mem- the memory of the hamster would
0: be i saw a person and they didn't feed me <laughs> <laughs> right right uh so it, it just occurs to me if you if you have this technology like why would you ever get cameras Like, why would you ever need a camera and get a hamster (laughs) and and, make it watch whatever you're trying to film? See, that that would be
1: the the follow-up. Our follow-up to that Black Mirror episode would be all police officers don't have body cams. They have hamsters in their pockets. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, 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 God. It's so stupid. I, I cannot... I could not stand the Netflix Black Mirror stuff. I hate. I don't think there's a single Well no, there was one episode I liked, but it was so a lot of it was really stupid.
0: Like next you're gonna what, get a get a snake so you can have it wrapped around your body and it can watch whatever's going on. <laughs> You'll get it in, in what whatever thermovision they have.
1: Yeah, oh god, yeah. But yeah, I I so that, that's where I think also this movie with the idea of memory it, it once again, like people, this, like I said earlier, it sets up a lot of stuff for you know, a movie seeming to be intelligent and difficult to understand when it really isn't, but people think it is for some reason. I also think this movie just gets at you know, this this movie has opened the doors for so much playing with memory that it's not done in a good way. You know, it's it's done for like stupid twists and stuff like that and and it's just it just bothers me like i, I like i'm like we said before we we are fine with twist endings we have nothing inherently against them you know like we talked about in our matchstick men discussion like that's a great twist you know yeah uh, but uh, but i feel like there's just so many that are just like done for the sake of doing it like isn't isn't playing with your belief inherently interesting and it's like no not really. Like, it should be done for a purpose.
2: Yeah,
0: I mean, I, I'm with you. That's like whole, M. Night Shyamalan's whole career, right? Is... Yep,
1: yep. Uh, <laughs> he's Yeah, The Sixth Sense. He, he had one good twist, and then every movie needed to have a twist. <laughs> this was a success.
0: Oh, God. Here's the twist, in Night Shyamalan. It's not always a success. Yes,
1: yes. So, yeah, I mean, this this movie is so—it works on so many levels. I uh, I wish Christopher Nolan would make a movie like this again. I wish he would do something that isn't like this huge budget spectacle. And I I just want it to be. The other thing I really like is that it's just explained very simply where it's like he got hit on the head. He has memory problem or brain problems like that's it. That's all we need to know where Christopher Nolan eventually becomes. Oh, I need to explain in literal nonsense terms why things are moving backwards in Tenet. And it's like, nobody fucking cares. Like, just say things move backwards. We're going to be on board with that. It's fine.
2: (laughs) Yeah,
0: I mean, if you're watching Tenet, you're already on board with it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, I can't imagine people would leave the the Tenet theater. In a different universe, people would leave Tenet and go, that was a really cool movie. But how can things move backwards? And it's like, nobody would care, you know? It's, It's like... It's like nobody really wants these explained to death, but for some reason Christopher Nolan needs a scene where one of only four women in the movie explains that it's a form of radiation that reverses entropy. And it's like yeah. – it, like, like we've talked about – like Zach and I talked about and we've talked about off mic. That's where Christopher Nolan is failing these days is because he is just using words that are big enough that people have – mass audiences have heard but don't fully understand. Like everybody knows everybody's heard entropy, but not enough people know what it is so he can use that for his purposes.
0: yeah and I, I think I don't I don't know I think we talked about this off mic. Um, the one problem that I thought was really dumb with his trying to explain things is like at some point they're talking about time actually moving backwards and they have this thing where like hot stuff makes you cold or something <laughs> yes <laughs> but the thing that they never address, is the movement of light
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. like
0: you, you should i i only have been able to see what sunlight probably because that's what would have been going forward and then to be going backwards yep yep like you would have only like you wouldn't be able to you i don't i'm not exactly sure how it would work like you either see like what's behind you just sunlight or nothing
1: yeah yeah exactly it, he he know. well it the movies have to make money, they have to be for mass audiences, and so they have to find this place where there's... Christopher Nolan wants to flesh it out enough that it seems intelligent. Like I said before, the patina of being a difficult problem, but it's never fully realized. Like, you could... Uh, I'm sure it exists now that Tenet's been out for a while, YouTube videos of being like, what about this? What about this? I think the the big, like, joke is like, oh, if you, you know, if you live your life and then you reverse yourself, does, like when you have to go to the bathroom, just like your poop go back into you type of thing, you know? And it's like, there's, you can think about it to death. Same thing with interstellar. It's like, here's relative like time relativity. Are we going to do it to the full extent that it, or discuss it to the full extent that it should be discussed? No, we're going to do the bare minimum to get us through this plot.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's just, that's fine. I know that movies have to do that. You can't, if you explain everything, it becomes a documentary, and that's not gonna yeah. not good for the narrative structure of any any movie, any sci fi movie. But I would rather less explanation than more.
0: Sure, no, and that's what I was gonna say is that you're you you've kind of hit the nail on the head. It's like they're giving you just enough X ex- like. What's the saying? Like, you give them enough rope to hang themselves yes, with? Yes. Like, they're yeah. giving you just enough explanation for you to know that they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> and I think I think that exact reason is why I appreciate Tenet more than Interstellar, is because they're both absolute nonsense, but at least in Tenet, he's describing something that isn't real. Like, sure. I can forgive him for that. Like, like reverse entropy is nonsense, but it makes sense in terms of a sci-fi story because that actually isn't a thing. Yeah. The nonsense of, that they do with like relativity, that is a thing. So I have more of an issue with it. You know, It's like why I like Inception, too. There's no fucking dream machine in the real world. So I'm fine with him trying to explain that because I know it has to be sci-fi. Like, this memento would suck if there was some bullshit half-ass explanation about like when his memory resets or what things he can or cannot condition himself with and stuff like that. But that's why I want less explanation. Just say, he got hit on the head. Brain problems. These are how the brain problems manifest themselves. Done. Here's the actual story. That's all I want.
0: He's the memory man. <laughs> yeah. The not, the not memory man.
1: Yeah. Oh, I've, you're the
0: memory guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I did I did find that strange. They're so like, oh, you're the memory guy. It's like, you mean the no memory guy? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, I, I wish... Uh, he would do more movies like this. It's cause it's good. It's, it's fun. It's compelling. And I think he has, he has kept some of his, he he still is able to put a movie together, like making it compelling. Like I still love, I still love inception. Inception is probably my favorite movie of his because he puts so much work. Like you have to watch an hour and 45 minutes just to make like three seconds of a van falling off a bridge interesting. And I love that. Like inherently, a van falling off a bridge in slow motion is boring as shit. But he puts so much work in to be like, oh my god, it's falling! And I love that. And Tenet as well. Like, Tenet is just a wonderful thing to look at. Like, when everything's fucking going backwards and you have no idea what's going on in that red-blue room scene with the temporal pincer movement and you're hearing voices going forwards and backwards, I'm like, I have no fucking idea what's happening. But I am so on board because it looks and sounds cool. Like, he can do that. But once you start to think about it more of his modern movies, you're like, well, no, there's a lot of nonsense here. Like you said, with this movie, this movie's almost perfect. Like, you can think about it, and it all
0: works on every level. I want more. I want more of that. (laughs) I can tell you said this movie doesn't need a sequel. Whenever you said that, I was like, they really could just make a sequel just to give us more of this movie. Oh, sure, sure. Like, the story wouldn't be about Lenny so much anymore as it would be about, like, the shitty things that people do to Lenny. Yeah, I, I would love to know more about
1: what Joe Pantoliano's doing when he's not in the scene. Like, there's just, when he comes out of Natalie's house at one point, Joe Pantoliano's, like, hiding in his car. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, how the fuck did he get there? Like, what was he doing?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, from, from what we get, like, from Natalie, Teddy, some guy that Jimmy met at the bar or whatever. Yeah. Like, I, w- I want to know more about how Teddy got into Lenny's life.
1: Yeah, yeah, yep.
0: And, and like they say that he was the cop on the case or whatever. Teddy says that, but that's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like I don't believe Teddy at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. So I want to know more about that. But
1: I, uh, I, I think the the obvious answer to if they made a sequel, the they would call it Memento. I think that is the, the easiest, obvious answer. But I think that if they do make a sequel, they should go balls to the wall and do the, um, the too fast, too furious thing and do too mem, too ento. <laughs> like, make it, make it make no sense at all, you know? <laughs>
0: oh, that's funny
1: but i yeah i mean i don't know if they if, i don't think there's any plans for a sequel uh christopher nolan movies don't have sequels unless they inherently warrant them like batman because you know nobody can make a single superhero movie anymore or even back in the late in the late uh thousands you know but i mean i i still to this day though i want a sequel to inception just for the fact that the movie starts with the top still spinning, and then it, like, starts to wobble, it falls over, it rolls off the table, and when it lands on the floor, it just starts spinning again. Like, I don't know what the fucking rest of the movie would be, I just want that to be the opening to the sequel of Inception.
0: (laughs) I, uh, I still have not seen that movie all the way through.
1: That movie is, I I love that movie, and I love to describe it as a bodybuilder of a movie. Like, that is exposition, the movie, and it is also, like I said, like three second shots of a van falling are the most interesting thing you've ever seen. It's wonderful.
0: (laughs) I think one thing I do know about it is, like, Ellen Page draws a maze or something.
1: Yes, yes, she does. And uh, as we know, as we've talked about many times, Christopher Nolan, his movies have very few women in them. Um, there's really, there's only, th- there's four women in, in Tenet. There's three women in this movie. There's Natalie. There's Sammy Jenkins' wife, and there's uh, Leonard's wife. That in there's very few women in in Inception. And now there's even one less woman because her name is, his name is Elliot Page now.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I, I think I just dead named yeah. Ellen Page. It's <laughs> Elliot Page. I'm sorry, Ellen Page. I'm sorry, Elliot Page. I so didn't Christopher mean
1: to Nolan's page. movies are losing women after the fact. It's ridiculous That's... how little he, and then most women in his movies are dead. <laughs> <laughs> Like, a lot of his movies have dead wives in them and stuff like that. So, it's it's very strange. Christopher Nolan, as Zach likes to say, he's never had sex before. He barely knows what a woman is. <laughs> <laughs> to him, a woman is a plot device. <laughs>
0: uh, I mean, is he wrong?
1: They say he has kids, but I don't know. They could be adopted, you know? Like, yeah. like when you go to somebody's inf- information, it says, like, number of children. It's just a number. It doesn't say, like, you know, two Real three adopted or something. I don't know They're what the other one would be. <laughs>
2: That's
1: offensive to adopt
2: children from bi-
0: biological.
1: So yeah, I mean, we we don't know, but uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, I can't wait to see what Christopher Nolan does next. Uh, have you seen the Batman trilogy? His Batman trilogy. Have you seen all of yeah. them? Okay, okay. I love. Um, and then uh, Insomnia, Prestige, Dunkirk.
0: I hate that JGL was was. I think his Robin was in his name. I yes. hated
1: that. Yeah, that's the, the end of that movie is where he's like he like puts says his name to some like worker, and they're like, oh, you're not in the system. And he goes like, try my real name, Robin. Or he, he doesn't say They're like, try my real name, and he hands over his driver's license or whatever. And the woman's like, oh, I, sh- I like that name. You should use it more often. It's Robin. And it's just like, I'm like, I don't care. I don't care. I, the third, well, people give a, the third Batman, the Bane one, the Dark Knight Rises, a lot of hate. But what people need to realize is he did not want to make that movie. Like, when Heath Ledger was dead, he was like, if there was a third movie, it would have had the Joker in it. And then when Heath Ledger uh, died, he was like, I do not want to make this movie. And Warner Brothers was like, you stupid motherfucker. <laughs> the Dark Knight was the biggest comic book movie in existence at the time. There needs to be another one, you know? I like, I like Bane, though, you know? You're a big guy for you (laughs) but yeah christopher nolan he's an interesting filmmaker i don't know if there's any other movies as we'd ever i mean i'd I'd love to talk about the prestige one day that's a good movie and i like insomnia more than most people but unless you had any other thing about specifically about the movie uh there was some other things i wanted to point out because i've always known about this uh that this uh, this movie the idea for this movie is based on a pitch from christopher nolan's brother jonathan that he actually turned into a short story and the short story got published after the movie came out, but it was like he was writing it and shared it with Christopher Nolan like before this movie was made. So mm-hmm. technically the the short story is the inspiration for the movie. Uh, the short story is called memento Mori. I had never read it, but I read it last night uh, before this recording. it's it's not bad. it's not very long. it's de- since it's a short story, it's not as fleshed out as the movie. Um, but it does take it in a different direction. Uh, The the movie uh, sorry the short story is just from the perspective of the main character who's named Earl in the story and uh, him like going through the the uh, instances of you know having his memory reset but it's not in kind of like one narrative It it takes place through wildly different times. Like in the, in the short story, like it starts with him waking up in like the mental, in a mental institution, but then it'll be like, oh, then he's out of the mental institution. It's implied that he escapes and he's looking for his wife's killer. But there's one instance where he like wakes up in a motel room and it's one of those like seedy motels where uh, there's a mirror on the ceiling, like above the bed. And he like wakes up and he looks at it and he doesn't understand why he's so much older than he remembers himself. And that's pretty cool. And so it, it gets at that notion. Um, it's written from the first perspective so first person perspective for him like seeing things and trying to explain them but then it also has narration or uh, dialogue or whatever it's called in the second person for like his past self like leaving him notes and stuff which is pretty interesting Um, but some of the lines in the short story are in the script and in the movie like the one that we mentioned about everyone needing mirrors to remind themselves of who they are like that's in the short story Okay, it is really interesting to see the same idea done in two different ways, uh, but it's pretty good. You can find it online, like if you if you search like Memento Mori, Jonathan Nolan, you'll find a, a ver, uh, some way to read it, and it's it's pretty cool. So so yeah, I mean uh, it's uh, the movie is way more. You have to flesh it out more, you know, to to make it a movie type of thing. But but they're both pretty good. Uh, I should have mentioned this earlier. I, I forgot about it. But um, speaking of this movie, uh, people seeing it as intelligent and stuff like that. This movie actually had trouble finding an American distributor. Like, it it had huge success at festivals. And, of course, Christopher Nolan's from from, uh, Britain, and that's where it, like, first started, and it got a lot of distribution in Europe. It had trouble finding an American distributor because so many executives saw it, including Harvey Weinstein, and passed on it because they thought it was too confusing for American audiences what yes so this is this is the this is the thing that we have to remember this that's the state of the film industry at the early 2000s that people that studio executives are like this is not going to get an audience because it's too confusing and as we described earlier this is not confusing it's it's the patina of being a difficult problem or a challenging watch and it is the furthest thing from that (laughs) it's crazy but then, then, of course, uh, the, the legend goes is that uh, eventually New Market picks it up. They distribute it in America. It makes so much goddamn money in America. It's ridiculous. It launches Christopher Nolan worldwide. Um, the, the legend is that after it got so much success, Harvey Weinstein tried to buy it from New Market because he, he knew he fucked up. And they were like, no, this is the only thing that's keeping us alive right now. <laughs> and the last thing I want to mention, because I always have to mention it, uh, the original Blu-ray release for this movie was in 2006. On Ben Affleck's birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. I I also do want to mention I've never seen it because I don't own the DVD release of this movie. um, And I have never found, like, a ripped version of this. But apparently on the DVD version as a special feature that it has some – it's infamous, the DVD, for being so confusing to navigate. Like, you have to, like, basically do, like, the – like the Atari cheat codes, like left, left, up, right, down, you know, start, select, and stuff to get to certain menus on the DVD. Oh, God. But if, like, like there's, you read stuff online where people are like, I, I just want to watch the movie, but I have to, like, Google how to do it on the DVD. Like, it's not easy. It's very, oh, wow. very strange. But one of the hidden features on the DVD is a recut of the movie that is in chronological order. Oh. So it's like you watch all the black and white scenes, you get the scene where it transitions from black and white to color, then you watch all the color scenes. It's just as like a fun thing to exist. I would love to watch that, like knowing the movie. I can't imagine watching that for the first time you see this movie. I feel like that would be so goddamn boring. Because <laughs> yeah. it takes away all of the, like, like we said, the catharsis of being put in the shoes of Lenny and stuff like that. Um, but I would love to see it just just to watch it, you know? But like I said, it's not that... I'm confused by any of this movie. And I'm like, how, how does this connect? How does that connect? So I wouldn't need that to expand on anything, but I think it'd be interesting just to check out. And I, I do, I, I, cause I mentioned, I have to, and we didn't mention it before. I love when it transitions at the end from black and white to color. Like that is some dope shit. I love that little touch in this movie.
0: So one thing that when I first heard that the the black and white scenes were chronological and that they connected, I was like, I at first, like he's just on the phone at first yeah. in the black and white scenes. And it, and as as far as I could tell that could have happened at any time before the movie
1: sure yeah you really it really is only at the end the end of the movie is when it's like oh these things are coming together you know that type of stuff yeah yeah yeah,
0: so yeah
1: because the whole black and white stuff is just to really tell the Sammy Jenkins story throughout the movie
0: right yeah yeah so when I when I heard people say that it was like chronological order I was like that's kind of weird because like I'm pretty sure it's just flashbacks about him telling a Sammy Jenkins story (laughs) (laughs) and so I was just like I thought I didn't, it wouldn't have mattered to me if those were in chronological order or not. Yeah, If you just yeah. telling the Sammy Jankis story. Exactly. Speaking
1: but. of the Sammy Jankis story, I do love that multiple times in this movie when Joe Pantliano shows up, uh, Guy Pearce will say something like, did I, he's like, I told you about Sammy? And, and Joe Pantliano's like, yes, every time you see me, you tell me about the goddamn Sammy Jankis story. Like, he <laughs> is definitely annoyed by it. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the one thing I, like, totally believe Teddy or any other character. Like, I would be so pissed, you know? I'd be like, yes! I've fucking heard the Sammy Jankis story before! <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I remember Sammy Jankis.
0: <laughs> I definitely thought it was... Like, so, so Lenny realizes that he maybe killed the wrong person because the guy's like, Sammy.
2: Yeah, and, uh, yeah. And
0: he's like, how do you know about Sammy? And Teddy's like, you tell you tell everybody about <laughs> yeah. Sammy. Like, everybody <laughs> you meet knows about Sammy Jenkins. <laughs>
1: yes, that's great. Oh, I love that. <laughs> oh, yeah, Joe, Joe Pantheon, I know we talked about it in the Midnight Run. I just love him as an actor. I, I think I love him in everything he's been in. He He does everything so well. I loved at the end of the movie when, like, Leonard throws his keys into the brush there's like multiple cuts back to Joe Pantoliano just looking for his keys and then at one point he's like come on Lenny help me find my keys and I'm just like <laughs> I'm like this has nothing to do with the movie he's just so like he looks such like such a loser looking for his keys
0: <laughs> but it's wonderful <laughs> no I yeah I agree that was well done and he something that like was amusing to me on the cross my mind is just like all of a sudden, Lenny doesn't know where he is, and there's somebody asking him for help looking for keys. <laughs> like It would have been really funny if he actually like, helped him look for the keys. Yeah. It's like, who are you? I don't know who you are, but let me help you find your keys.
1: Oh, that's great. That's great. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful movie. And then the end credits song is a David Bowie song, which just works for me perfectly. Uh, even though I did read that it, it was supposed to be Radiohead's Paranoid Android, but they couldn't pay for the rights to that song. And I'm like, so they used a David Bowie song. And I'm like, perfect. That's that's wonderful.
0: Uh, cause they like should have used the Bruce Springsteen song. <laughs> and, then, and then maybe Obama will talk about Memento <laughs> <They> <laughs> on their podcast. Used
1: a Mo- Obama
0: song, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So anything else that you have about Memento?
0: No, I... I think that we did a pretty decent job. I'm sure there are more little things that we could talk about here and there, like in the bar when he drinks the the spit-in beer, etc. Yeah. yep. But I just, I mean, I really want to hammer home they did Greed Amnesia right.
1: Yes, they, oh yeah. They
0: did the best thing they could have done. They edited the movie in such a way that it gave, you know, as you said, with, with whatever you called the House of Leaves, like it gave the user that, or the, the player... Not the player, the watcher. <laughs> that feeling of of not knowing what the fuck was going on, yes, and just knowing what it caused. It, and oh, that yeah, was yeah. that was beautifully done. Um, this movie probably wouldn't have worked any other way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, as you said, that straightforward, just chronological cut probably wouldn't be any good the first time you watch it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that definitely seems as just like a little artifact of of you watch it out of interest just to see it, how it flows together and stuff like that. But once again, I think this movie works so well in that, you know, in all the color scenes, they start and end with certain things happening, and then we see those start and ends in later color scenes. You know, like, they they always blend together. And I love the fact that sometimes... Like, you know, one color scene will start with something and you're like, okay, we're here, we're new, I have no idea what's going on, you're in the shoes of Lenny. But then when the next color scene ends, sometimes it'll be the exact same, like, shot and voiceover and stuff like that. But there are other instances where, like, the dialogue might be changed a little bit or the camera angle might be changed a little bit. So it really is, like, on every level, like, these things are blending together. Sometimes they're the same, sometimes they're just a little different. It's just, it's perfect. It's it's so, it's so well put together that i i think anybody if i'm sure a lot of people who listen to this will have seen memento it's such a popular movie if you if you've seen it if you haven't seen it well check it out if you've seen it watch it again and think more about memory and if you think that you're smart for understanding this movie just just don't do that just don't just stop it <laughs> you might be um, smart that's fine this movie is not a test of that
0: <laughs> that's that's right uh, i i wholeheartedly agree you might be smart <laughs> <laughs> yeah, might not be.
1: This movie is um, not a not an indication of that, you know.
0: <laughs> they're, they're unrelated things. Yes, like at best, it means your IQ is above eighty five or something. Like <laughs> we don't we don't know that much about about your intelligence based on whether you got this. Like so. I
1: mentioned earlier, that I'm like I said, I'm sure there's people who watch this and are confused by it. I would love to see like a sketch in like a comedy thing where like people finish watching Memento. And there's one person who's like, I didn't get it. Like, what was that movie about? And then someone says, like, well, you know, like Sammy Jenkins, like that whole story. And they're trying to explain the movie. And the person's like, who's Sammy Jenkins? (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember. Who
0: was that in the movie?
1: (laughs) And be like, you literally missed the whole point of the movie if you watch it and don't remember Sammy Jenkins. (laughs) Yeah,
0: you have to remember Sammy Jenkins. It's actually on his hand. He tries to wash it off
1: yeah oh and and so speaking of sketches i I said to ben before we started recording i was gonna have to mention it uh kroll show is a fantastic sketch comedy show Uh, if you've never seen it i think it's on like it's on like cbs all access but by the time this comes out i think cbs all access will now be paramount plus i don't know if you've heard about that ben it's a fucking the state of everything sucks right now Uh, we got obama and springsteen doing podcasts we got CBS turning into Paramount Plus. Who fucking knows what's going on in 2021? Um, I think it's time to start
0: pirating again.
1: Oh, well, yeah, that that time never ended, I think. But, <laughs> but, but the Kroll show's great, and they, they do reference Memento a good bit, um, because... There's, I think, Kroll Show was like 2006 when it started, and so Memento was still in like the zeitgeist because that movie never really went away. As Christopher Nolan got bigger and bigger with the Batman stuff, but there is um, a recurring segment on Kroll Show called Too Much Tuna, where it's two old guys on like their own little like local cable access channel, and what they do is they will like invite somebody to a diner, and then as they're there at the diner for whatever reason, they'll have the the waitstaff bring over a sandwich that is just covered in tuna like it is a comical like it's it's like piece of bread a mound of tuna you can't even see the bottom piece of bread and then like another piece of bread on top that's just like tilted like there's so much tuna it's like it's not a sandwich like you can't pick it up that type of thing and so they, the two old men, think it's hilarious, and they try and get the other person to say like, "What is that? It's too much tuna." Like that's their prank show type of thing. <laughs> the two, thing. the two old men, I know, I, I know you'll appreciate it, but it's Nick Kroll and John Mulaney are the two old men. Oh, and nice. so and so you have John Mulaney doing like his fucking wonderful shtick of like old Jewish dude, you know. And so there's one segment of too much tuna that I love where it's set up where they're at the diner and they have this British woman there. And it's clear that they have her in from Britain to be like interviewing for a nanny job and okay. so and so she's there and and like it's revealed throughout the sketch that there is no nanny job that they're she's there literally just for them to prank her with too much tuna, and so like the tuna sandwich comes out, and they're like trying to get her to go to like like that. And the thing they always do, which is hilarious, is the tuna sandwich comes out and they're like, why'd you order that? That's too much tuna. Why would anybody order that? You can't eat that much tuna. And there, there's a few sketches where they, like, get – like, John Mulaney be like, you stupid fucking idiot. That's too much fucking tuna, you asshole. Like, he gets really <laughs> angry about it. But in the segment, the, the realization of the woman sets in where she's like, she's like, wait, so what about the nanny job? And they just keep talking about the tuna. And she keeps saying, like – like so uh, so there's no children? Like I, I flew all the way over here for nothing. Like I spent all this money, I left a job for nothing. And at a certain point she says it like three or four times. John Mulaney goes, Do you have fucking memento disease? There's no children. You are on a prank show. There's too much tuna, and it is the funniest fucking thing. Because I love it. he's like, Do you have fucking memento disease? <laughs> I will put the clip in because it is, it is so goddamn good. <laughs> Mr. Cena Rad yes. looking for a nanny. Yes. Flown here for the uh, job interview.
2: You've got three boys and you're looking for a nanny. Uh-huh. And I'm a nanny and yeah. here I am. Yeah, we remember. know. Uh, so I just. Little did yes. you know that you would be pranked with too much tuna.
0: So tell us about yourself. <sighs>
2: Um, well, I've been working for 10 years. Oh, so.
0: what is this? <laughs> what did you order? What has been placed in What did you do? Oh. I'm sorry, I don't... You've been pranked. Look at that. Yeah. Now, wouldn't you say
2: that that is? So are they, they're they not coming, the children? Oh, The kids? What kids?
1: Oh, the fake Ed. No, there's no kids. No kids. Nope. There's one baby
0: here. That guy right there.
2: I don't even like tuna and you made me fly all the way over here from London. Why didn't you take the boat?
0: Yeah. I thought you were gonna take a liner.
2: So there's no job and there's no children and
1: May I ask you a question, and I don't I don't mean to be rude. Do you have fing memento disease? Because every two minutes,
2: is there a job? Is there kids? There's no kids. There's no job. There's too much tuna. You're on a prank show, right?
1: Would you sign a release? So there was a while afterwards. I would just say to people like, "Do you have fucking memento disease?" <laughs> 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 oh, remember Sammy Jangus? <laughs> okay. With that being said, uh, are you ready for our questions, Ben? I am. Okay.
0: Let's answer questions.
1: So, so for Cinemodities, uh I'm gonna say, oh yeah, I think definitely, I think there's there's no other movie that makes me s- so invested in it or puts me in the shoes of the person because I I think our audience knows it, Ben knows it. I I do not get emotionally attached to movies like at all. Like I'm a very I'm a very like a distant person when it comes to movies. Like I I definitely see them as the facade and things like that that they are, but I still love them of course. Even though I think if you listen to this podcast, I end up hating them more often than not. Um, but this movie is the best. There's nothing quite like it where I am just invested, as you said at the start, in this movie and what's going on. It is just, it puts me there and I feel like I'm in it. And the thing that even makes it odd for me is that I feel this way after watching it so many times. Like, that's how good it is at doing that, is that I know what's happening, I know the whole goddamn story, but every yeah. single time when, like we mentioned, that scene when he his memory loop restarts and he's like, running and he's like okay what am i doing i'm chasing this guy no he's chasing me i know that scene in and out but i am there in that scene every single time it happens and that is that is so difficult to do for a movie for me so oh yeah and late night definitely like i would show this movie to people there's so much to talk about with it and that's one of the things i love from late night movies is they actually start a discussion and also another great thing about this movie it's it's a solid 110 minutes long like, this is a fairly long movie, but it does not feel that way. Like, every like every time I sit down and watch this movie, I'm like, oh yeah, this movie's almost two hours. Like, I for some reason, I always think it's like, a, like a, just a quick 90 minutes. So much happens in this movie, but since it's so uh, compelling, it never feels that way. And so I think that's a great thing for late night movies, is just to be like, yeah, it's a full story, you're gonna get a lot from it, and it's not gonna, like, bore anybody to death. Well... If you're watching this with somebody and they get bored, like, don't watch movies with that person anymore. <laughs> so I'm going yes to both with a with a bullet. Absolutely, this is a great movie.
0: Yeah, I have to agree. I, I mean, it's it's a yes on both fronts. Nice. It's weird. It's uh, it's maybe primarily weird because they did the memory nonlinear time thing. Well, yes. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's like we were saying before. The editing
1: makes this this movie. That storytelling structure makes this movie. I don't—like I just said, I don't know if there's anything else quite like this. Sure, I mean, after Pulp Fiction and this, like, non-linear storytelling becomes so common, and I, I don't think it's always done well. But then even when it is done well, I think people start to hate it after a certain point. I know we—I don't think we've talked about it on the podcast, but I love the, f- the fourth season of Arrested Development, the first Netflix season. Do you remember when that came out, like, every episode was structured around one character— and they yeah. would just run into other characters and like as you're watching the early episodes you have no fucking clue what the other characters are doing and scenes mm-hmm. just straight up don't make sense but as you watch it and it focuses on other characters you start to fill in the whole story like i i i see similarity between that and the story structure of memento where you don't really know what's going on at the beginning you have to wait for that information to get doled out in this interesting compelling way to have the full picture so i, I love that type of storytelling it I find it absolutely abhorrent that mass audiences, and I think even critics, were like, this is terrible for Arrested Development. And Netflix re-edited the fourth season of Arrested Development to make it more like the first three seasons, and they hid the original version of it. Like, you have to fucking try. Like, you have to know the the URL to find the original version of Arrested Development season four on Netflix now if they haven't taken it off because everybody hated it so much. And I'm like, no, no. This is what Netflix should do. They shouldn't just buy a show and do the same exact thing that the show has been doing because guess what? They're going to fuck it up. They don't know how the show was originally run, you know? Do something mm-hmm. new. It's why I don't like Black Mirror on Netflix. It's why I don't like Trailer Park Boys on Netflix because they didn't try to do something new. They were just like, we're gonna, they're gonna like Ricky's an idiot, right? Okay, Ricky will be an idiot on Netflix, and it's like let's just double down on that. I, I, they actually tried to do something different with the rest of development, and they should have stuck to their guns. But they were like, "Nope, critics didn't like it, so we're just going to like pay to re-edit it." And I'm like,
0: "That's bullshit. That's, that's crazy. I mean, that's actually like uh, kind of close to cancel culture in terms of like some people didn't like it, so you're going to redo it. Like, fuck them. Like, yeah. So what? Stand, you know, like you said, stick to your guns. Like, fucking." It's okay if some people don't like your shit. Yes, just...
1: yes. <laughs>
0: yeah, what a what a thing. What a novel concept
1: in 2021. 20, some people might not like your stuff. <laughs> oh, God. So uh, so good. Uh, we're in agreement on cinemais and late night. Uh, for snacks, I have to say, I don't have a lot of snacks for this. This is one of those movies that I love so much that I just, like, fall into the trap of just watching it and thinking about other things. Um, I did come up with some. Well, one – uh, the, the electrified objects test that they give Sammy Jankis, which is also a great scene because Steven Tobolowsky plays Sammy Jankis. His doctor is played by Thomas Lennon in, like, two scenes, who I think is best known as either Lieutenant Dangle from Reno 911, the guy who wears the short shorts, the cop that wears the short shorts. Thomas Lennon is also the guy that wrote and created the Night at the Museum movies. So he's, like, a, he's like a very big name, and he just has, like... <laughs> two scenes and like three lines of dialogue in this movie it's great but i love when they're doing the electrified objects test and the multiple times sammy Jenkins gets shocked and he gets pissed off about it and gives the doctor the finger like i love that little touch where he's like he's like well test this you quack and gives him the finger and i'm like that's a good response for a doctor because you got mildly shocked um but i would like to take the electrified objects test not really set it up as a test but just have it like out on like a uh on like a table or something in the sin e modities portion of the restaurant. So like little kids can just go over and be like, Oh, look at this block. And they pick it up and they get shocked. And, you know, we'll see if the kids like learn not to, uh, to touch it or anything like that. Well, right See, I do know that if we did that in an env- any environment, not just a restaurant, if you did this same kind of test with children, where you had, like, say, a room full of children, you put this, this table with, like, some objects are electrified, some are not, you would watch the children, you'd have the period of time where, you know, kids go to play with it, they start to learn that some of the objects are electrified, they'll learn that it's the same objects and stuff like that, I would bet. My hypothesis would be that after a while, the kids that knew which objects were electrified would start to prank or convince other children to touch the electrified objects. Like that is my 100% hypothesis that they'd be like, oh, go like one little kid to the other little kid would be like, go grab the uh, the triangle block, you know, just to see them get shocked and laugh at them. 100% humans would do that. <laughs> yeah, it's like our it's like the Cinemodities version of the marshmallow test or something, you know. Have you have you heard that they give the kid the marshmallow and they say, like, either you can eat this now, like they're like the adult is like, I'm going to give you this marshmallow and I'm going to leave the room. Either you can eat it now, but if you if I come back and you haven't eaten it, I'll give you another marshmallow. And it's a test on like humans and in, in, instant gratification and like can humans delay pleasure and stuff like that. And and it's a very basic experiment. But I always love the fact that when they do this to kids, there are some kids that will eat. A certain part of the marshmallow and then try and hide the part they've eaten so it looks like there's still a whole marshmallow there. And I'm like, that's the fucking reason you do that test. The the capacity for humans to lie about things. Definitely. <laughs> so yeah, we would do that. That's our that's our test in the Cine modities portion of the restaurant. Um the only I don't I actually don't have any snacks. The only thing I have was um we should have a tattoo parlor in the restaurant, but it should be only through like the prison tat apparatus that you get a tattoo because we see leonard do the uh the needle on the pen and he heats it up he does he gives basically gives himself a prison tattoo there's probably a more formal name for like a homemade diy tattoo but i just know it as a prison tattoo so we have a prison tattoo parlor in the restaurant (laughs) i'm with you i would definitely like to get a, a the tattoo i like the most i think is the never answer the phone one in this movie like the way the font is where it's it looks like, like, like 50s sci-fi B-movie font, like, you know, attack of the aliens from Mars. You know, it's got that, like, that, like, uh, convexity to it and those big mm-hmm. block letters. Like, I love that look of it. Um, that'd also be great to have on your arm. Be like, what's your tattoo say? Never answer the phone. And it's like, so that's why you won't pick
0: up when I call you. <laughs> those, those are the only two I had. So what do you got? It's not food, uh, but I think that we should choose customers at random when they enter. And then when they sit down, just bring them some item off the menu, and act as if they had already ordered. <laughs> okay, I like that.
1: Um, Be like, I didn't order this. Be like, what do you? What do you mean? You did for me, like you know, fifteen minutes ago. <laughs> what, what do you have? Memento disease. <laughs> <laughs> okay. then, I mean, we we might as well have too much tuna.
0: Also, cause... sure,
1: sure. I I'm sure I've suggested that somewhere along the lines uh, because i love that sketch so much too much (laughs) there's there's one sketch of that in curl show where they like do it one of them's in a hospital like one of the old men is in a hospital for some reason they do it to a doctor in the hospital like they're not even a diner they somehow get the tuna sandwich to the hospital it's a great great show curl show is fantastic everybody check it out
0: (laughs) Mm, i don't know if i have anything else really like like you said i mean i was i was kind of going along for the ride here
1: yeah and there's not there's not even a lot of food in this movie like i think we see uh teddy eating like a soup at a certain point but it's never like the focus of anything even when uh leonard and natalie are at the diner they don't order any food
0: they just talk yeah, I mean I, I think that we can probably expand the, the memento memento experience to like different parts of the restaurant. So like yeah, you sit down and they just bring you food and you're like, I didn't order this. But then like when you're leaving they go up to you and be like, Oh, you left this at your table. Oh <laughs> sure. It's <laughs> like okay. the whole the whole diner experience. Like, oh this is the hotel you're staying at. <laughs> and... If we if we do it enough
1: like at the setup, like you know, we start with when they first show up. We give them food, maybe some other things happen, and we we try to try to start to convince the person that maybe they have like memory loss and stuff like that. Right. All in the effort of trying to get them to pay multiple times. Okay. Like, sure. and then that could be like an employee of the month type of competition. Like, how many times can you get one customer or party to pay? You know, and be like, I got them to pay three times at one visit. Be like, I got five. And it's like, you're the employee of the month, you know? Yeah. Okay. That
0: sounds good. Okay, right on.
1: Well, uh, I'm glad you saw Memento finally, uh, Ben. Now you can, every time someone says... Have you seen Memento? You can say, I don't think so, and see if they get the joke. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because now there will be a record on the internet of you having seen it. But I guess that brings us to the end. So uh, next week we'll continue on with the fourth year uh, with uh, just the perfect connection to an R-rated Christopher Nolan movie. We will be discussing Spy Kids. Because, you know, nothing says R-rated Christopher Nolan like a a PG kids movie, right? (laughs) I...
0: I'm not there for that one, am I?
1: Uh, I don't know. It hasn't happened (laughs) yet. And then in in narrator's voice, it has totally happened. (laughs) So, yes, we will be continuing on with Spy Kids. But other than that, um, uh, just because – not just because, but since we mentioned it in this episode, definitely head on over to the Cinematity's Patreon uh, where you can check out Matchstick Men where we also gush over how well edited that movie is, which is the same editor, Dodie Dorn. And check out all the other stuff that's on Patreon, some bonus content, and support the podcast. Uh, I think Ben wants to pitch something, uh, which you can totally uh, skip if you want to, because I don't think those funds will go
0: to Cinemotides, but go, go for it,
1: <laughs> So, uh,
0: as I, I think I've maybe mentioned on Mike, I don't know, not 100% certain, I recently started playing Magic the Gathering, and I, while playing, you know, you have to track your life, and I was using apps that 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 might work as a as a
1: different level joke it's like when you're playing magic the gathering you have to track your life and it's like somebody hearing that be like yes you should think about your life when you're
0: playing a card game (laughs) (laughs) um so i i use the some of the different apps that are out there to do this and and me and my group we play commander format and one of the big problems i had is is that There were very limited options in terms of tracking commander damage. And if you have a deck that's built around dealing commander damage and your app isn't letting you track it right, you got problems. Like that's going to be an upsetting situation for you. So I made an app and I think it is the most customizable uh, game tracking app that exists in in terms of tracking magic or other trading card games. And I'm a little bit biased, but I think it's also probably the best app that exists. Some of the things things, a little bit biased. (laughs) Some some of the things that it does allow you to track is like each, each player can create a commander damage counter on your player's card. So you have buttons that are attached and they are colored the same as the opponent's card for their commander. You have your own commander damage button that is on your card because people can take, take control of your commander and deal commander damage to you with it. And those all have to be tracked separately. Furthermore, you are actually allowed to create multiple commander damage tokens for yourself. So if you have partner commanders, you can track those as well. They match the color of your player card, and they have a trim that is uh, a color from one of the five mana colors that you can pick. And that is all stored and saved, and those preferences will never get erased. And so the next time you play, you don't have to set it up again. You can just start. it. You know, you Spend more time crushing your opponents and less time thinking about how the game mechanics actually work or the the logistics of tracking the game using the Magic Life Counter app that is made by Xanderthal Apps, which I uh, think I've pitched before that I am Xanderthal Apps on the Play Store. So there will be a link in the doobly-doo.
1: Perfect. I was just about to say, send me links, and I will put them in the show notes for sure. Uh, I have a question about it, and then if it doesn't exist, I have a suggestion I I have never played Magic professionally, I have just played uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! and Duel Masters professionally, but every card game I think there is some form of keeping track of life, life points in Yu-Gi-Oh!, life in Magic, I know. Um, Does your app have a history? Uh, Does it show all of the things that have caused loss of life or change in uh, some, any type of scoring. Because the reason I say this is that uh, in professional Yu-Gi-Oh! play, when I used to play, which is also... I, I played when Upper Deck was running the tournaments before Konami came in. That's a story for a whole different time. You, the tournaments, a lot of professional tournaments, would require that life and scores were kept on paper with a history. Because if you used apps without history, someone could say, well, how did I get to that? Or something like that. If there are discrepancies in scores, you could go back and show where things happened. If you're if you're i don't like I said, I don't know if if you're playing at a level that magic would require that, I would imagine any tournament where you know if you're playing for any type of prizes and someone says like, "Oh, I have my life at ten, why do you have it at eight? You know can we go at a history to see where a discrepancy came in or something like that
0: yeah so i'm I'm glad you brought that up. that actually is. Literally, the next thing that I intend to work on today Wonderful. is is uh, game state tracking. So so what the game state tracking will do is it will actually display the values of all of the different counters, all of the different statuses and life totals. And it will update uh, essentially the way I plan to do it is when a user presses a button, the timer is going to start
1: mm-hmm.
0: every time the user presses a button that timer will restart unless it has already expired. That timer is going to last for something like 10 to 15 seconds. So if you stop pressing buttons for 10 to 15 seconds, a game state will be recorded. Perfect. And then in the app, I intend to enable the user to actually look at that history while they're in the game and click on one of those points and actually revert the game to that state.
1: Right on. That's what, that's what it needs. I think, you know, cause ev- uh, I think this is a perfect cap to this episode uh, because uh, you don't want your scores in any competitive game to have to be have to come down or rely on people's memories. You would <laughs> like a record of them so perfect, Fen. I fully support this app now <laughs>
0: <laughs> so uh, i will I'll be sending Rob some links, check them out. And cinema audience i I do have it is not a free app I there are no ads on it, but it does cost three dollars to download. I am capable of giving out promo versions that are free so perhaps if you hit up the Cinedit's email, uh, you might be lucky enough to receive one of those. so come oh, check it out right and on. tell your friends if you play magic, use this app. if you don't play magic, start using start playing magic because this <laughs> app is so good.
1: That would be the craziest thing. How'd you get into a competitive card game? I really like the scoring system on this app. (laughs) How'd you even find it if you don't play the game? Now that's the question. (laughs) Like, why'd you get into Yu-Gi-Oh? I don't know. I really like that you start with 8,000 life points. That's a very (laughs) nice number to me. Is there still 20 in Magic? Uh, It is 20 in Magic, 40 for Commander. Okay, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I never played Commander. Um, But okay, right on. So check out the show notes for all that info. And I think the last thing we have then is uh, how do we end this episode? And of course, because I mentioned already, we'll take that end credit song, which is David Bowie's Something in the Air, and play it in reverse. All right. And I just got the links. Perfect. (laughs)
2: One for silver, yeah, I still love silver. Instead, said It's fell It's hard when you fell It's hard when you you The, 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 the rest is made i the top is must this is the